Chapter 5 Economic Reform Section 1 The Political Economy of a Christian Society Reform of the economy in terms of a Christian theory of political economy requires the recognition of three essential principles relating to economic behaviour. These three principles constitute the foundation of a Christian economic order. Without this foundation, a Christian political economy is not possible. Before looking at these principles of economic life, it is important to remember that we are dealing here with the economic organisation of society. A society is far more than an economic phenomenon, however. What is said here, therefore, should not be understood on its own as a paradigm for social reform or regeneration. Rather, it is one element of a Christian paradigm for social reform. To define mankind or society merely in terms of the economic aspect of life would be a reductionist and therefore, ultimately, an idolatrous view of human life. Nevertheless, as part of an overall Christian social theory, the economic aspect of life is important and must be addressed. What follows is not meant to be a complete social theory by any means. It offers a Christian perspective on the economic organisation of society. The three principal foundations of a Christian theory of political economy are 1. Recognition of the moral nature of economic behaviour and therefore of the necessity that such behaviour conform to the ethical precepts of the Christian faith as revealed in the canon of scripture. 2. Acceptance of personal responsibility as the context of economic life. And 3. Private ownership of economic power. The last two principles are the consequence of the consistent application of the first. It may be assumed that all who seek to develop a specifically and consistently Christian theory of political economy will accept this first principle. It may also be assumed that the second of these principles will be accepted by economists who are committed to a specifically Christian approach to their subject. About the third principle, private ownership of economic power, there has been much disagreement between Christians, including Christian economists, and especially between those for whom socialism functions as a primary aspect of their religious worldview and those for whom it does not. This chapter will attempt to show why the consistent application of biblical ethics to economic behaviour must lead to private ownership of economic power and what political reforms are necessary if the British economy is to conform to a Christian theory of political economy. Taking these three principles in reverse order, we shall now look at their implications for the economic organisation of society. A. Private ownership of economic power The Bible condemns the accumulation of economic power by the state. Deuteronomy 17, 17 Instead of economic power being concentrated in the hands of the state, the Bible teaches that economic power should be vested primarily in the family and the individual. And the state is required to protect the private ownership of economic power by its enforcement of the Eighth Commandment, quote, Thou shalt not steal, end quote. The state is permitted to collect taxes only for the specific purpose of enabling it to pursue its God-ordained function as a 
Ministry of Public Justice, that is, for the purpose of funding the administration of the state. Romans 13, 1-7 It is this principle of private ownership of economic power that constitutes the basic economic framework of a Christian theory of political economy. This restriction on the state's authority to concentrate economic power into its own hands and the stress on its duty to protect and preserve the economic power of the individual and the family has far-reaching consequences for the economic organisation of society. Private ownership of the economic power requires private ownership of the means of production, distribution and exchange of economic goods and services. Private ownership of the means of production necessitates the privatisation or eradication of nationalised industries and the cessation of government economic controls over these and other industries. Private ownership of the means of distribution requires that there be no minimum wage laws or wage and price controls, rationing, government subsidies, government-imposed restrictive practices, import and export quotas and controls, tariffs, and state-controlled or enforced wealth redistribution programmes. It also means there should be no state-controlled or state-assisted welfare and education programmes or services. Private ownership of the means of exchange requires the abolition of state-owned mints and state-enforced fiat money. It also means that there should be no state-enforced controls on currency exchange rates or restrictions on the exchange of specie into foreign currency, and vice versa. No state controls on the volume and value of the money in circulation, and that free coinage and banking practices should be permitted. That is, there should be no state-imposed license requirements and controls on entry into the economic enterprise of banking and minting coin, other than those required by the administration of public justice. That is, for example, fair weights and measures. B. Personal Responsibility What has been described above would be called today a free enterprise or free market economy, that is, a society in which there is freedom from government direction and control in the economic decisions that people make. A Christian economic order, however, requires more than the mere application of the mechanisms and technology of free enterprise. The Christian theory of political economy does not presuppose that mere freedom from state control and access to free market economic technology, for example, the availability of technological improvements in industry or of highly developed financial institutions and methods of payments, greater economic rationalisation, etc., can, on their own, produce economic growth and the general social amelioration that economic growth makes possible. Nor does it suppose that a policy of laissez-faire on its own will produce a Christian economic order. The Christian theory of political economy recognises that the most important economic resource is human initiative. Where this is lacking or is socially prohibited in some way, economic growth and general social amelioration will be limited. Economic growth, therefore, requires a social order in which the Christian virtues of honesty, hard work and thrift are accepted and prized, and in which personal initiative and effort are rewarded without social disapprobation being shown to those who succeed. This requires a society in which envy is not accepted as a legitimate response to the success of others, or at least a society 
in which envy is not institutionalized as virtue by politicians who are eager to appease the envy of voters by promising punitive social controls over the wealth and freedom of those who succeed in business. Of course, this means also, and inevitably, a social order in which personal failure is shouldered by the individual and not imputed to other individuals, groups or society as a whole. That is to say, the Christian theory of political economy requires a social order in which both the freedom and the responsibility of the individual, as well as the necessity of honesty, hard work and thrift, are recognised as essential to a sound economy, and, moreover, in which these ideals are prized above the mere acquisition of material things. Private ownership of the means of production and distribution is widely recognised as an essential feature of capitalism. Quote, Private ownership of the means of production has been a classic definition of capitalism vis-à-vis socialism. But a Christian, that is, a biblically informed theory of economic organisation of society, requires more than this. It requires private ownership of the means of exchange as well as private ownership of the means of production and distribution. The reasons for this will be explained below. C. The ethical foundations of a Christian political economy. The epistemological and ethical foundations of a Christian theory of political economy should be explicitly articulated and provide the intellectual, moral and economic framework within which the Christian economist seeks to understand his subject. It is in the context of these epistemological and ethical guiding principles that the Christian economist must seek to develop norms for economic behaviour. This intellectual, moral and economic framework is a theonomic framework. That is to say, it is a framework that seeks to explicate the precepts of God's law as they apply to economic behaviour in the modern world and thus provide ethical criteria for assessing different types of economic behaviour and economic policy. Christ said, quote, If you love me, keep my commandments, end quote, John fourteen fifteen, And the Apostle Paul taught us that, quote, Love worketh no ill to his neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling, that is, the keeping, of the law, end quote, Romans thirteen ten. The Christian economist seeks to show us how we can love God and our neighbour in the way we behave economically and what kinds of economic activity are prescribed by God's law. It is this explicitly biblical, epistemological and ethical perspective, along with the biblical concept of private ownership of economic power and the Christian ethic of personal responsibility, that constitutes a distinctively Christian theory of political economy. This theonomic framework accounts for the Christian view of the role of the state. In the Christian perspective, the state's authority over the individual and society is limited. But this limitation is of a specific nature. It is not libertarian in nature. The state is there to protect and preserve the moral environment in which the individual, the family, church and society generally, can function obediently in response to God's revealed will for and calling upon mankind Without the preservation of moral and legal order, sin would reign unchecked in society and rational economic activity would become impossible. The state thus has a vitally important, 
God-ordained role to play in society, without which it is not possible for a free market economy to function properly. As a ministry of public justice, it creates the social order necessary to enable the free market to flourish. By establishing justice, it enables the law-abiding citizen to go about his business with confidence in the legal and moral predictability of the market order, lack of which would render national economic behaviour according to the fixed moral standards of the Christian religion, impossible. But its role is political, not economic in nature. When the state does engage in management of the economy, it disrupts this moral order, that is, it confuses politics with economics and becomes a disruptive influence on the very order it is charged by God with preserving. The state is not given authority by God's word to manage the economy or redistribute the wealth it produces. The family is stressed as the primary economic institution in the Bible. God has granted economic power to the family and to the individual, not to the state, and this delegation of economic power to the individual and the family is protected by the Eighth Commandment. The state is authorised to levy taxes specifically for the purpose of funding the administration of public justice, which is the state's only legitimate function under God's law, Romans 13, 1-7. It is not authorised to act as an agency for redistributing wealth within society. The Eighth Commandment forbids all compulsory wealth redistribution programmes of any kind. The state, therefore, is limited by God's law in the amount of taxes it may collect and the purposes for which it may levy taxes. Its functions and jurisdiction are limited. It exists to preserve maximum freedom under God's law for the individual, the family, church and society at large. Only as the state preserves this freedom under God's law will society be able to develop an enterprise economy that can sustain the long-term economic growth that will lead to the kind of general social amelioration for all in society that the West has come to expect and take for granted. The role of the state is thus essential in a Christian economic order. But its role is juridical, not economic. It exists to preserve legal and moral predictability and accountability within society as a whole and within the economy as an essential part of society so that society can flourish. The Christian theory of political economy sets forth, therefore, a form of economic organisation based on private ownership of the means of production, distribution and exchange, and the Christian virtues of honesty, hard work, thrift and personal responsibility in the context of a free society abiding by the rule of law with a limited civil government appointed to administer public justice according to the general principles of equity laid down in God's law. If our economy is to conform to a Christian model of economic organisation, therefore, a far-reaching programme of economic and political reform must be implemented. It is to such a programme of reform that we shall now turn. It must be recognised, however, that economic reform on its own cannot create a Christian economy, much less a Christian society. Unless people are prepared and willing to behave in a Christian, that is, a biblically informed way when they engage in economic activity, no amount of political reform will produce a Christian economic order. Reform of social structures on its own 
cannot redeem society from sinful behaviour. Nevertheless, social structures, from the context of all human activity, including economic activity, and if such activity is to conform to Christian ideals, these social structures must also conform to Christian ideals. The rest of this chapter will be occupied with delineating the kind of structural reforms that are necessary if our society is to conform to the Christian theory of political economy. Section 2. Abolition of Legal Tender Laws As we have already seen, money can be defined simply as the most marketable good. Men should be free to trade in whatever medium of exchange they choose, whether gold, silver or stilton cheeses. The function of the state in this area as a ministry of public justice is to police weights and measures and to enforce legally binding contracts between individuals who have freely entered into those contracts. This is the limit of the state's God-ordained role in economic affairs. Romans 13, 1-6 Thus, if two parties freely choose to enter into a legally binding contract for the supply of certain goods in exchange for a given amount payable in a nominated medium, for example gold or silver, the function of the civil government is to enforce that contract should either party default or commit fraud by supplying something other than that specified in the contract, whether faulty goods or payment in a debased medium of exchange. Banknotes promising to pay the bearer of demand a given sum must be fully redeemable in the specified medium. If the bank fails to redeem its notes or tries to suspend payment, the state should step in and force the bank to meet its obligations. If the bank is unable to do this, it must be declared bankrupt, the receiver called in, and possibly its shareholders required to reimburse their creditors and make restitution to those holding the banknotes. Equally, the coining of money that is debased, that is, worth less than its face value in terms of wits and fineness, must be punished and restitution made to those holding such currency. Commercial contracts freely entered into, specifying settlement of account in gold, silver or even cornflakes, would be equally valid from a legal point of view. It is not the function of the civil government to establish and maintain a common currency of the realm, whether based on gold, silver or any other standard, and pass laws making that currency legally binding upon creditors in settlement of debt. Its obligation in monetary affairs is simply to police weights and measures, punish fraud and ensure that legally binding contracts are fulfilled faithfully according to the terms of agreement on both sides. If a party agrees to pay a given sum of gold or silver in exchange for goods and services, he is legally obligated to honour that agreement in the nominated medium of exchange. If he wishes to settle his account in a currency other than that stipulated in the agreement, and the vendor refuses to receive payment in the medium offered, the state must ensure that the original terms of the contract are honoured. The state does not have the moral authority to pass legislation that standardises a particular medium of exchange as currency of the realm, obliging all creditors within its jurisdiction to accept that medium in the settlement of debt. For the state to create and maintain such legal tender and enforce its use in society is an abuse of its God-given authority and power and 
an attack on the individual's freedom under God's law. In a society basing its monetary transactions on just weights and measures and legally binding contracts, and where the government's role in the economy is limited in the way described above, there might, theoretically, be multiple currencies or mediums of exchange in use. In practice, a single medium, as the most marketable good, which historically has been gold, would probably establish itself as the main currency or standard of payments. That is to say, people would tend to demand a certain medium in exchange for goods and services, since, as the most marketable good, the use of that medium of exchange would maximise their options and give them a more competitive position in the market. Less marketable mediums of exchange would therefore tend to be demonetized. This is a process of economic rationalization that develops over time and in fact accounts for the emergence of gold as a de facto international medium of exchange and a general demonetization of other mediums of exchange. Given the economic conditions described above, therefore, gold would most likely become the common medium of exchange and payments would be settled either in gold coin checks drawn on gold accounts, or by means of gold instruments, that is, claims to gold and promissory notes redeemable in gold on demand, bank notes, etc. Other mediums in circulation, such as silver, and less valuable metals for lower denominations, such as copper, would be valued against gold. But no legally binding fixed exchange ratios would exist. Thus, the situation that existed in Britain prior to 1914 when the face value of silver coin was greater than the value of its metal content, and between 1914 and 1920, when silver coin was undervalued and worth more than its face value, would be avoided. There would, in other words, be floating exchange rates between different mediums, and silver and bronze coin would effectively function as currency only up to a certain amount, beyond which it would tend to be demonetized due to the greater value and efficiency of gold as a medium of exchange. Gold would probably function as the de facto standard. This does not mean that gold should be made a legally binding standard of payments enforceable by legal tender laws. The establishment of government mints and a central bank to regulate and control the issue of money in terms of an official gold standard. The only monetary standard enforceable by the state should be that of honesty. Parties to economic transactions would be required by law to honour the terms and conditions of contracts and agreements freely entered into, and governments would be obligated to enforce such contracts and agreements by bringing to justice those who fail to fulfil the terms and conditions of their contracts. As regards everyday cash transactions, the agreement to exchange goods and services for a given amount in a particular medium of exchange would constitute a contract and should either party subsequently be found to have reneged on his contractual obligations by supplying goods and services other than those agreed upon, or by paying for them with debased money, he would be liable to prosecution. Banknotes offered in exchange that banks fail to redeem would, however, be considered a breach of contract on the part of the bank that issued them, not the holder. Likewise, debased coin passed on to the unsuspecting public would be considered fraud on the part of the agency that minted it. Only by limiting the government's role in monetary affairs to the task of enforcing legally binding contracts and policing weights and measures 
shall we be able to regain our economic freedom since governments pass legal tender laws in order to enable the state to control the creation, volume and value of the money in the economy. Governments demand such powers ultimately in order that they might be able to expropriate the nation's wealth for their own purposes, for example, in order to redistribute the nation's wealth. Such government-created and government-controlled legal tender, whether it is based on a gold standard or a fiat paper standard, involves the curtailing of the individual's freedom and usually the plundering of his economic resources by the state. This is theft by government decree and thus economic tyranny. Abolition of legal tender laws would hamstring the state's ability to control the money supply by rendering its debased paper notes ineffective as the only medium of exchange legally binding in the settlement of debt. Eventually, as this and the other reforms discussed in this chapter were put into practice, this currency would become worthless and its continued creation would be rendered illegal since its issue would not be considered a legitimate function of the state. Parties to an economic exchange would be free to stipulate the currency of their choice, which would be legally binding, even in the settlement of debt. The government would be forced increasingly to finance its own borrowing by raising taxes, and it would be required to make payments in the medium of exchange agreed upon by the parties involved in any contract it entered into. This would force the government onto an honesty standard like everyone else. If the government contracted for services or bought goods under an agreement that required payments in gold, it would be legally bound to honour its contractual obligations. Since governments should not be immune from the law, any failure on the part of the government to make payment in the medium of exchange agreed upon in a government contract would render it liable to prosecution, and bankrupt governments would be forced to resign from office and make restitution to their creditors. Governments should not be treated as limited liability corporations. Section 3. Abolition of government-imposed restrictions on the use of precious metals as currency. As we have seen, gold, because it excels above all other metals in the qualities necessary for a medium of exchange to function effectively, became the de facto monetary standard historically throughout the world. What is said here is equally applicable to all other forms of money, for example, silver and bronze, but since gold is the historically accepted form of specie used as a monetary standard throughout the world, the principles involved will be discussed in relation to gold. In order for gold to function efficiently as a medium of exchange, it must be allowed to function without political obstructions being placed upon its use as such. If the abolition of legal tender laws is to be effective, therefore, by allowing individuals to write legally binding contracts and generally trade in the medium of exchange of their choice, all regulations and laws penalising or obstructing the use of hard money must be removed. There have been two methods used to control the use of gold as a medium of exchange by our governments in recent times. A. Laws making the use of gold as money illegal and B. The imposition of sales tax and capital gains tax on gold. The former simply makes all trade using gold as a medium of exchange a criminal act. This is a rather draconian measure 
and those governments wishing to present themselves as more enlightened and enamoured of a free market philosophy would, no doubt, choose the latter, which makes the use of gold as money much more expensive than government fiat currency. That is to say, it makes its use as a medium of exchange unprofitable or at least less profitable than fiat currency and therefore uneconomic. Obviously, just as we should not expect to pay sales tax when exchanging token rogue nickel coins for notes at the bank, neither should we have to pay it when exchanging fiat currency for gold. Yet, this was precisely what happened prior to January 2000 if one used gold as a medium of exchange, since both gold bullion and coin were subject to VAT. And, with the exception of British-denominated coin, the seal of gold is still subject to capital gains tax. Both these means of controlling the use of gold as money have been used by our governments since the Second World War. We shall now look at these blunt instruments of economic tyranny in more depth. A. Laws making the use of gold as money illegal. If the government is to control the economy for its own purposes, it must, of necessity, have a means of controlling the creation, volume and value of the nation's currency. Without control of the nation's currency, the government power to control and manipulate the economy is severely handicapped. The freedom to trade, to use the medium of exchange of one's choice, to hold one's wealth in a form that the state has no control over, limits the power of state over society. Economic freedom is thus a great bulwark against tyranny. If the government is to have the power to pursue its own policies without being hindered and limited by the electorate, it must deprive people of their economic freedom and vest all power and authority over the money supply in itself and its agents. Taxation, no matter how heavy it may be, cannot accomplish this on its own, since it still leaves the taxpayer with a degree of economic freedom and thus with a real, if limited, sphere of economic life that the state is not able to control. Once the authorities have obtained control of the currency, however, by denying people the right to trade in the medium of exchange of their choice, it matters not how much toleration the government may show in times of peace or prosperity by permitting people to trade in various mediums other than government currency. The government still has the power of control, should it deem there to be an emergency serious enough to warrant the exercise of its monopoly over the money supply. Privileges, even great privileges, can be granted by those who have the authority and power to rescind such privileges. No matter how much free rope is given to people under normal circumstances, the government can pull in the slack when it wishes to do so. This was the story of Britain's economic and political history in the 20th century. For example, in time of war, the state needs to build up and maintain a war machine that will be able to defeat the enemy. The cost of doing this is immense, especially in times of mass warfare such as the First and Second World War. The state must amass the resources needed for this from the nation, which, in theory, it represents. The simple and honest way of doing this is through taxation. However, it seems that governments have always been prone to supplement taxation with deficit financing, that is, borrowing. 
It was in order to facilitate such deficit financing on the part of the government that the Bank of England was created, and for which it has existed to this very day. When faced with the necessity of pursuing hard fiscal policies, however, government lays itself open to the disapprobation and censure of the electorate. In order to obtain its ends without the risk of unpopular resentment or of losing office at the next general election, or possibly even revolt, governments resort to the use of less obvious and open methods, though much more damaging to the economy, of monetary policy, that is, manipulation of the money supply. But how can government do this effectively and efficiently, especially in times of high government expenditure such as our own, if people are able to redeem their currency in gold and therefore able to maintain their economic independence of the state? Such independence, that is, economic freedom, necessarily limits the power of government. Suppose, then, that the government needs revenues to finance a war, for example, or the creation of a state welfare agency, but fears it will not be able to attain it through taxation without making itself unacceptable to the electorate, and therefore without running the risk of losing office at the next general election. It cannot inflate the money supply by issuing fiduciary media, and allow redemption in gold without facing a massive run on its services. And if it does not offer redemption, people will not accept its notes. Thus, redemption in gold must be suspended. Indeed, as we shall see, all buying and selling of gold, or even the holding of wealth in the form of gold or foreign currency that can be redeemed in gold, must be made illegal and individuals required to surrender their stocks of gold coin and bullion to the government coffers. The government is then able to inflate the money supply and monopolise the currency, and the population must accept payments in the form of devalued fiat notes issued by the central bank. By suspending the use of gold as money and replacing it with fiat paper money, the government is able to expropriate the nation's wealth without running the risk of creating the same kind of hostile reaction that direct fiscal policy would most likely create, particularly among the wealth-producing and property-holding classes, who usually have to bear the heaviest tax burdens of any taxable group. British society traditionally had a strong ethic of individual liberty informed by Christian values and a Christian view of responsible citizenship. In such a milieu, one might expect dishonesty on the part of government in the management of the nation's monetary system to provoke a public outcry. But it seems Christian ideals have long since ceased to have any place in our greedy and envy-ridden socialist society. Nonetheless, for government to raise revenues through the monopolising and debasement of currency, rather than by means of honest fiscal policy, is deceitful and constitutes a form of theft on the part of the very institution whose purpose and duty is to uphold justice, protect the innocent and punish wrongdoing. It is economic tyranny. The individual's rights and freedoms are outlawed and his livelihood becomes dependent on a state-managed economy. His economic prosperity, his opportunities for work, perhaps even his right to work, become inseparably tied to government economic and social policy. Economically, he is no longer free. 
he has become enslaved to the state. Most people, of course, are unaware of what is happening. They are promised security and prosperity by an all-powerful state, and they begin to see freedom as a mean thing alongside this. Once they are hooked on such propaganda, this whole totalitarian ideology becomes reinforced throughout society and institutionalised. The result is that government power and control over people's lives is enhanced and reaches levels not previously countenanced or perhaps even thought possible. The population, by and large, since it is unaware of the danger that such absolute power brings, is apathetic about what is happening and fails to recognise the need for a form of government. People see only the promises that governments make, promises that are impossible to keep, though few politicians will admit it. Indeed, the very failure of government promises is used in propaganda as an argument for the extension of governmental power and the creation of more state controls and regulations, and motivated only by self-interest. The masses swallow this ideology without scrutinising its contents. The nation's ability to reassert its freedom is vitiated and it is unable to respond effectively to tyranny on the part of the government. Far greater power accrues to governments that are prepared to pursue such methods than that accruing to governments determined to finance their policies by means of direct fiscal measures. A government that has to raise vast amounts through taxation is subject to the willingness of the people to accept its dictates and must always carry the people with it. Otherwise, revolt is possible. This restraint is absent, to a large extent, for a government that is prepared to finance its policies by means of monetary expansion, since it always has at its disposal the whole wealth of the nation, and need not go to the people to raise funding for its policies by means of taxation. The modern state has effectively taken control of the nation's wealth by taking control of the volume and value of the currency in circulation, which it is able to debase for its own ends whenever it deems necessary to do so. In 1939, the government of Great Britain was able to raise the funds necessary to finance its total war machine by means of powers that extended to legalisation, requiring the British people to surrender all gold coin, bullion and foreign currency in their possession to the Treasury. By means of the same legislation, the government was able to take control of securities payable in foreign currencies. On the 24th of August 1939, the Emergency Powers Defence Act 1939 was passed. This enabled the government to make defence regulations in accordance with the purposes set forth in the Act. On the following day, the defence finance regulations were made. These regulations stated that, quote, 4. 1. Every person in whose case the following conditions are fulfilled, that is to say, a that he is or has at any time since the 3rd day of September 1939 been in the United Kingdom or, being a corporation, he is or has at any time since the 3rd day of September 1939 been resident in the United Kingdom and, b, that he is entitled to sell or to produce for sale of any gold, shall offer that gold or cause it to be offered for sale to the Treasury or to a person designated by the Treasury for the purposes of this regulation at such a price as may be determined by 
or on behalf of the Treasury, providing that the preceding provisions of this paragraph shall not impose upon any person an obligation to offer any gold for sale or to cause any gold to be offered for sale, if, and so long as he is, in respect of that gold, exempted from this regulation by the Treasury or by a person so designated, 1a. Where a person has become bound under paragraph 1 of this regulation to offer or cause to be offered any gold for sale and has not done so, the Treasury may direct that that gold shall vest in the Treasury and it shall vest in the Treasury accordingly free from any mortgage, pledge or charge and the Treasury may deal with it as they think fit. But the Treasury shall pay to the person who would, but for the discretion, be entitled to possession of the gold such price in respect thereof as may be determined by or on behalf of the Treasury. End quote. These regulations similarly required all residents and corporations of the United Kingdom to sell their foreign currency to the Treasury or its designated agents at a price determined by the Treasury and to assign all rights to credit and bank balances payable in foreign currency to the Treasury or its designated agents. Again, with the Treasury determining the sum payable as consideration for the assignment of the rights to itself. Securities payable in certain foreign currencies were also covered by these regulations and had to be registered with the Bank of England, the Treasury having the power to vest in themselves and pay for them in sterling. In other words, all residents of the United Kingdom holding gold in the form of coin or bullion were required to sell it to the Treasury or its agents at a price to be determined by the Treasury or its agents. Monetary transactions in gold were outlawed by this legislation, and even the holding of gold, except with the permission of the Treasury, was forbidden. All residents of the UK were required to surrender all wealth in the form of gold coin or bullion to the Treasury in order to enable the government to fund the war effort. They were also denied the freedom to trade in any currency, that kept its value against the debased fiat money issued by the Bank of England, since they also had to surrender foreign currency. The act under which these regulations came into force was related to the war effort, being the Emergency Powers Defence Act 1939. After the end of World War II, however, the government, wishing to maintain this policy of outlawing the use of gold as money by the British people, could hardly maintain it under emergency powers taken in the state of war. The 1939 regulations were therefore superseded by the Exchange Control Act 1947. This enabled the government to continue its monopolistic control of the gold supply in time of peace. Section 1 of the Act prohibited anyone in or resident in the United Kingdom from purchasing, borrowing, selling or lending either in or outside the United Kingdom, any gold or foreign currency form to anyone other than an authorised dealer and required anyone who did purchase or borrow gold or foreign currency from an authorised dealer to comply with such conditions regarding its use as the Treasury may impose upon it. Section 2. 1. Immediately then required everyone in or resident in the United Kingdom holding gold and who was not an authorised dealer to sell his gold a foreign currency to an authorised dealer unless he had obtained consent to retain it from the Treasury. As in the 1939 regulations, the 1947 Act also covered securities. 
certain exemptions from the general provisions of the Act were allowed, for example, under the Defence Finance Regulations 1939, genuine collector's pieces were not required to be surrendered under the 1947 legislation. Specifically, under the Exchange Control Collector's Pieces Exemption Order 1947, which came into force on the same day as the Exchange Control Act 1947, collectors were permitted to hold and deal in gold coin minted in or before 1816, and any gold coin minted later than that, provided its numismatic value was greater than that of its gold content, were it to be offered for sale to an authorised dealer. Other exemptions were granted where the holder had, quote, obtained the consent of the Treasury to his retention and use of any gold or specified currency, and is stated in an application for the consent that he requires it for a particular purpose, end quote. But when that purpose lapsed, the gold had to be surrendered. Furthermore, the Act states that, quote, where a person has become bound under this section to offer or cause to be offered any gold or specified currency for sale to an authorised dealer, he shall not be deemed to comply with that obligation by any offer made or caused to be made by him if the offer is an offer to sell at a price exceeding that authorised by the Treasury or without payment of any usual and proper charges of the authorised dealer or otherwise on any unusual terms. In other words, not only was he required to surrender his gold unless it was held with the permission of the Treasury and for a specifically nominated purpose agreed with the Treasury, he had to sell it at a price determined by the Treasury, even if he could sell it for more than the Treasury price. The purpose of the Act was to prohibit the use of gold as money or trading in gold as a means of livelihood by the people of Great Britain. The government reserved to itself alone the right to use gold as money. By denying people the right to trade in hard money and foreign currency and forcing its own fiat standard upon the economy, the government greatly enhanced its power and influence over society. It had, through its monopoly of an inflationary mechanism for creating money, a means of plundering the wealth of the nation to fund its own policies and the extension of its authority over the lives of British people. F.C. Howard commented on this act, quote, Almost every substantive subsection in the Act contained words such as, quote, except with the permission of the Treasury, end quote. This permission may be given generally by the Treasury or by notices to banks, brokers, registrars and others which are published generally or issued to such persons from time to time or by the approval of forms by answer to a special application made in a particular case. In addition, in cases where a particular section applies, it may be unnecessary to seek permission in consequence of an order made under Section 31, post exempting certain persons or transactions altogether from the effects of a particular section. When considered in the light of these limitations, although the Act appears to prohibit the most everyday and inoffensive transactions by persons all over the world, it will be found generally that the control is not greatly altered from that which prevailed under defence, finance, regulations, and in some respect, it is rather lighter, end quote. That the draconian measures implemented in time of war under emergency regulations should be enacted as permanent legislation after the cessation of hostilities, notwithstanding that the controlled established 
may be eased from time to time under certain circumstances, and, after all, they may just as easily be enforced again, is a sobering example of the growth of government control over people's lives and of the acceptance of the ideology of state regulation of society, totalitarianism, over the past 50 years. The purpose of the Act was clearly to ensure that the authorities had control over the wealth and resources of the nation and that no transfer of such to parties outside the United Kingdom or outside the jurisdiction of the government of the United Kingdom took place without their prior approval and permission. Without this kind of power and influence over the economy and over the lives and actions of those normally resident in Britain, the grand plans of the socialist regime that inherited the power of government after the end of World War II would have been impossible to implement. In 1966, the Exchange Control Collector's Pieces Exemption Order 1947 was replaced by the Exchange Control Gold Coins Exemption Order 1966, number 438. This allowed dealing in gold coins minted in or before 1837, and the holding of up to four gold coins minted after 1837, provided they were in the holder's possession on or before 26th of April 1966. Other than this, the order stipulated that any resident of the United Kingdom needed permission to, quote, one, hold any gold coin minted after 1837, and to buy or borrow or sell or lend any gold coin minted after 1839-1837 unless he is selling to an authorised dealer in gold or a trader in coin, as defined in Statutory Instrument Number 2042 of 1949, or to a coin dealer specifically authorised by the Bank of England. End quote. This order was revoked in 1971 by the Exchange Control Gold Coins Exemption Order 1971, number 516, which enabled all gold coin to be freely bought, sold and held. The holding of gold coin after this date was not subject to restrictions, but permission was required for certain purchases and sales between 1975 and 1979. These regulations related to coins obtained by collectors. As far as bullion was concerned, residents of the United Kingdom, except for authorised dealers, were not allowed to hold bullion. In 1979, the exchange control restrictions were fully suspended and the 1947 Act itself was repealed in 1987. During the period 1939 to 1979, the use of gold as money was prohibited to the British people. This was Britain's greatest and most sustained period of socialist experimentation. With the election of the Thatcher government in 1979, the socialist experimentation began a brief decline. During the 1980s, some significant changes were implemented that took the nation away from socialist regulation of the economy and moved it towards a more productive free market system. Unfortunately, the radical reform programme initiated by Thatcher was first weakened and eventually abandoned by the subsequent Conservative government. Under John Major, the Conservatives failed to build on the gains achieved in the 1980s and the Major government's pro-European Union stance, followed by an even more pro-European Labour government elected in 1997, means that a move back towards socialism is now underway, only this time the regime will be directed by a grand Euro-bureaucracy 
administered from Brussels. B. The imposition of sales tax and capital gains tax on gold. With the suspension of the exchange control restrictions in 1979 and the repeal of the 1947 Exchange Control Act in 1987, government control of the use of gold as money was not at an end, however, even if dealing in gold was legitimised. In 1975, VAT had been imposed on the purchase of gold, although after 1979 people were allowed to trade in gold, to buy and sell gold and to hold savings in the form of gold coin and bullion. The incentive to do so was greatly vitiated by sales tax, which effectively made the cost of using gold as a medium of exchange prohibitive economically. The imposition of VAT on gold, coin and bullion, therefore, meant that the use of hard money that was free from political manipulation continued to be restricted. The individual was still denied a medium of exchange that was impervious to government policy aimed at redistributing the nation's wealth. This continued until January 2000, when VAT ceased to be payable on gold, coin and bullion in the European Union. Whichever party is elected to govern the nation at a general election, its first principle of government will be to retain power. It will use the means at its disposal to develop policies geared to enhancing its power and its chances of remaining in power. This inevitably involves control over the money supply, the purpose of which is to bolster government policy, which will be aimed at redistributing wealth to those sectors of the electorate from which the government derives the majority of its support. Traditional socialist governments tend to favour trade unions by means of direct subsidies and grants to nationalised and union-controlled industries, while conservative governments tend to favour private sector business, facilitating the expansion of credit through the mechanism of the banking system. Without a currency that is responsive to government manipulation, it is far more difficult perhaps impossible in the modern world, to do this. Modern conservative propaganda has promoted the ideology of freedom, free markets, consumer choice and limited government, but the reality is that even for conservative governments, the ability to apply strict controls on the nation's currency is considered an essential tool of government if it is to rule effectively. Inasmuch as this is accepted as political reality by conservatives, their claim to the ideology of freedom, consumer choice, free markets and limited government is disingenuous. While it is true that today the Conservatives, in the 19th century it would have been the Liberals, can point to the fact that they have promoted this ideology more than any other political party, it is not true that they have made freedom of trade and consumer choice a principle of individual freedom, and this was particularly shown to be the case by their denial of the individual's freedom in the choice of a medium of exchange. Conservative commitment to political control of the nation's currency was testimony to the fact that much of the free trade propaganda was rhetoric. As long as VAT was charged on gold transactions, it was impossible for gold to function as a common medium of exchange. Although those who would use it as such were not legally forbidden to do so, they were penalised economically, in such a way that the development of a viable hard money system was rendered impossible. The abolition of sales tax on gold is necessary for two reasons. First, there is an important sense in which sales tax, 
and this applies to other forms of indirect taxation, is a dishonest means of obtaining revenue. People tend to impute the value of the sales tax to the good being purchased. This is simply because of the waste of effort involved in constantly assessing costs in terms of the value of the good plus sales tax paid to the government for the privilege of buying it. It is a purely analytical calculation that is, at least for the average household or living budget, pointless. The two sides of the equation will still have to be combined and the total cost will be what is assessed in terms of rational budgeting and affordability of the good under consideration. The tendency is to treat sales tax as part of the cost of the good, which, from the point of view of the consumer, it is. Where vendors simply advertise a sales tax inclusive price for goods, as is the case in Britain for many goods, the sales tax is more easily hidden, being disguised as part of the real cost of the goods, which, in fact, are cheaper than the tax-inclusive selling price. Although there is no official or formal deception involved, and everyone knows that part of the costs they pay for goods and services is tax, the human tendency is to think and calculate in such a way that this fact is obscured. It is precisely this psychological tendency to see the total price paid as the cost of the good or service, rather than as cost plus tax, that attracts politicians to sales tax. The fact that everyone knows what is happening if they stop to think about it is irrelevant and does not render sales tax inefficient as a political tactic for obtaining revenues. Politicians prefer sales tax because they know that most of the time people will not stop to think about it, at least in most everyday transactions. Sales tax, in spite of the public's knowledge of how it works, is a dishonest tax used by politicians to hide the true rate of taxation and hence the real costs of government policy. Sales tax is also immoral because it is indiscriminate, that is, payable regardless of whether one has an income, a net increase in wealth. Those who make a net loss or live off their savings have to pay just the same as those who make a net profit. This disregards the principle that tax should be paid on the increase. Direct taxation, that is, income tax, is thus a more honest and, from the citizen's point of view, though not from the government's, a more rational form of taxation. For the same reason that sales tax is immoral on all goods to which it is applied, it is immoral when applied to a medium of exchange such as gold. But there is a second and much more important reason why sales tax should not be charged in a medium of exchange. The effect of charging sales tax on money is to double the sales tax payable for anyone purchasing goods with that form of money. For example, prior to January 2000, if one wished to purchase goods to the value of £100, the VAT at the current rate in Britain, 17.5%, amounted to £17.50. If one used a medium of exchange such as gold, sale of which by the banks itself attracted VAT at the standard rate, one had to pay £17.50 extra for the £100 of gold obtained for the bank in order to purchase the goods. This made the total VAT payable on the transaction £35, £17.50 paid on the goods themselves and £17.50 paid on the gold obtained from the bank. The total sales tax was thus 35% on the value of the goods. Obviously, 
Under such conditions of taxation, the use of gold as a medium of exchange is made impossible for economic reasons. Gold is rendered ineffective as a medium of exchange by VAT, and society is obliged to use the government's privileged fiat currency for its economic transactions. The application of sales tax to money is a form of economic tyranny in which freedom of choice, if exercised in a certain way, is so heavily penalised economically that people are induced to act in the way that the government desires, that is, they are forced for economic rather than legal reasons to use only the fiat currency issued by the Bank of England, which the authorities are able to expand and contract as they see fit in conformity with government policy directives. The Bank of England is simply an instrument of government control over the economy with a monopoly over the issue of currency that the private sector is not able to break. Capital gains tax, where applicable, affects the use of gold as a medium of exchange in the same way and should therefore be abolished for the same reasons. This tax is levied where a person's capital gains in any one year exceeds a certain amount, £6,800 in 1998-99. At present, capital gains tax is payable on receipts from the sale of gold that is not legal tender in the United Kingdom. Of course, this tax is based on the measurement of a person's capital gains in terms of a depreciating fiat currency, and thus it is a higher rate in real terms than the nominal rate. The very term capital gains is misleading here, since in an inflationary economy, a purely nominal gain may be made on the sale of gold, that is, again calculated in terms of a depreciating currency, when, in fact, there has been no real gain from its sale, that is to say, no increase in purchasing power. It is simply the exchange of one form of money into another. Historically, gold tends to keep its value over the long term, though it fluctuates considerably in the short term. One can buy today with an ounce of gold roughly what one could buy with an ounce of gold 200 years ago. But the fiat paper Bank of England note is devaluing all the time. This means that though gold retains its purchasing power over the long term, that purchasing power is represented by increasing quantities of Bank of England notes, political fiat money. Any gain from the sale of gold, therefore, may be quite fictitious. Yet, government receives capital gains tax from the sale of gold. Such a tax, however, may not be a tax on a person's capital gain at all, but simply a tax on wealth itself, that is, a tax on savings in the form of gold. Capital gains tax on gold is therefore effectively another form of sales tax and subject to the criticisms set forth above. One of the aims of government committed to establishing a just economic order would be the removal of all forms of indirect taxation such as sales tax, since government should raise its revenues in an honest way by means of direct taxation, which is easily accessible from the taxpayer's point of view and which clearly indicates the real costs of government. Only through direct taxes is a taxpayer easily able to determine what the government is costing him. Direct taxation is therefore the only honest means of raising government revenue. All other means of obtaining revenue from the state, such as monetization of debt, inflation, and repayment of debt with debased currency, sales tax, etc., are ways of disguising the real level of taxation and therefore the real costs of government.
we are to create a free and just society, we must move towards a free economic order based on Christian principles of economic behaviour as an essential element of such a society. Nevertheless, reform of the economy must proceed in a piecemeal fashion, and for the reasons stated above, the removal of sales tax from gold and all other forms of money is a necessary first step in tax reform. This process of reform must lead to the removal of all forms of sales tax on all goods. If, however, we are to create an economic order that is free from a fiat currency that the government is able to control for its own advantage, the existence of a hard money system of payments that is free from political manipulation is a necessary first step. It is important that sales tax should be abolished on gold and all other mediums of exchange in the early stages of reform, since restoration of justice in monetary affairs is essential for building a sound economic order, and thus for building a sound economic future. That VAT is no longer payable on gold coin and bullion in the European Union is a welcome step forward, but it is not enough in itself. It does not signal that the monetary authorities wish to reform the monetary system on the lines set out above. Legal tender laws remain, and the euro is an attempt to create a European-wide political supercurrency. Neither does it mean that, for the moment, at least, we are free to use gold coin as money without being economically penalised completely, since capital gains tax is still payable on the sale of non-British denominated gold coin and bullion. Acceptance of the principle that mediums of exchange should not be subject to sales tax, along with abolition of legal tender laws, is essential for the creation of a sound monetary system that is free from political manipulation. Since there would be no penalty involved in using gold as a medium of exchange under such a monetary system, contracts could be written stipulating payment in gold denominations and payment made in accordance with such contracts in coin or gold instruments. This would help to force banks to observe strict liquidity practices in relation to any new issues of banknotes, since those holding their notes would be entitled to full redemption. From the economic point of view, it would also ameliorate the whole banking system before a strict legal requirement of 100% reserves for banks was enacted. By approaching reform of the economy in this piecemeal fashion, the economy can be prepared for change gradually, but the earlier Less radical reforms, abolition of legal tender laws and abolition of sales tax on gold, before the more radical measures relating to banking reform to be discussed below are implemented. By the time a legal requirement for 100% bank reserves is enforced, the banks should already have largely adjusted their practices in line with the reality of an economy where people are free to arrange legally binding contracts for payment in hard money, such as gold, or gold instruments. The constant reference to gold here should not be misunderstood. It is not being argued that gold should be legal tender, except where contracts stipulate gold and those contracts are legal, in which case gold does not become legal tender in the accepted sense, but simply part of a legally binding contractual obligation. There may be other forms of money, such as silver. The likelihood, however, is that cheques and banknotes and other means of transferring money would be linked to gold, which would most likely function as a de facto standard once political money had lost its monopoly powers and legal tender status. In effect, there would be no legal tender, simply binding contracts and accepted money instruments 
that are fully redeemable in the denominations specified. Section 4. Reform of the Banking System Reform of the banking system is fundamental to any thoroughgoing reform of the economy that aims at eliminating fraud and establishing justice and fair practices in financial affairs. The banking system is at the heart of the British economic system, and the Bank of England is at the heart of the banking system. If reform fails to penetrate to the foundations of current banking philosophy and practice, it will fail in every respect, ultimately, since economic reforms that do not address the central role that the banking system plays in the economy will be superficial and cosmetic. Any good intentions and actual reforms implemented in other areas of the economy will ultimately be undermined if the fraudulent practices upon which the central banking system works are not exposed and brought to an end. It is vital for the long-term economic stability of the nation that the economy should have a sound and just monetary system, and this can only be achieved by bringing the nexus of institutions that presently comprises the banking system into conformity with the principles of honest commerce that are demanded in all other areas of business. There are three necessary steps in the process of reforming the modern banking system. A. Abolition of the central bank. B. Reform of commercial banking practices. And C. Regulation and policing of the banking system. In order to minimise as much as possible any shock to the economy that these reforms might create, it would be necessary to put into effect the reforms discussed above first and allow them to begin acting upon the economy. A timetable for reform could then be issued so that banks are prepared for the following reforms in time to start putting their houses in order and to enable them to prepare for further change. By the time the following banking reforms become legally binding, individual banks should already be operating on sound, hard money principles. A. Abolition of the Central Bank Although the Bank of England performs many complex functions in the economy, its basic rationale is to fund government debt and control the monetary system upon which the British economy works in accordance with government policy. It does this by monetizing government debt and regulating the money supply through its function as banker to the commercial banks. The development of the Bank of England as a privileged institution with a special relationship with the government, on whose behalf it performs services and functions that guarantee that the government will never become bankrupt, and its eventual nationalisation in 1946, has resulted in the institutionalisation of the fractional reserve banking system in such a way that the British economy is now held captive by inherently unstable banking practices based on the creation and manipulation of political fiat money. Consequently, as has become only too painfully obvious over recent decades, the economy is precariously balanced on the edge of an economic precipice and the slightest blow to its fragile foundations can cause severe problems and panics. As this banking system has developed and become more deeply entrenched in the nation's economic and financial institutions, the business cycle, which is erroneously named and should perhaps be called the banking cycle, has become more obtrusive and detrimental to the health of the whole economy, increasingly difficult to control, and its disastrous effects impossible to avoid or even limit by government policy, which usually only exacerbates the situation 
by applying a salve for the economy's ills, more of the poison that originally caused the malady. Further tinkering with the system benefits no one in the long term and can only benefit certain privileged groups at the expense of the rest of society in the short term. If the economy is to be delivered from these problems, it is necessary to reform the whole system and place the economy on a sound monetary foundation. Tinkering with the symptoms will achieve nothing. The problem must be dealt with at the root cause. In order to achieve this, it will be necessary to abolish the central bank as a first step to reform of the whole banking system. The main functions of the Bank of England can be stated briefly. 1. The bank has traditionally funded the government deficit, that is, the shortfall between total revenues and government expenditure. As we have already seen, this was done by floating government debt on the capital and money markets as government stock, securities and treasury bills. As was explained in Chapter 4, the function of the bank as manager of the government's debt has been transferred to the Treasury's Debt Management Office. Reform of the way government debt is managed will therefore need to take in the DMO as well as the Bank of England. Over and above this, the bank acts generally as banker to the government. 2. It issues banknotes and generally manages the nation's monetary system in accordance with government policy. 3. The Bank of England acts as banker to the commercial banks. 4. It controls the gold and foreign currency reserves. 5. It also controls foreign exchange rates and domestic interest rates. Although these aspects of the bank's work have been separated out for analytical purposes, in practice they comprise one complex system that controls the whole economy. The Bank of England and DMO together act as the anchor to the whole economic system. As we have already seen, reform of the economy according to just principles of economic activity as taught in the Bible requires at least the following changes to the system. 1. Government should raise revenue by means of direct taxation so that it can be easily seen how much the government is costing and so that governments cannot make policies based on promises they are unable to fund honestly. 2. Withdrawal of government from interfering in the economy generally and hence 3. The abandonment of government wealth redistribution programmes. 4. Abolition of government control of the money supply. And 5. Just principles of banking and therefore proscription of fractional reserve banking practices. Once these reforms are put into effect, the rationale for a central bank that acts as a special agent for the government in controlling the economy generally and the money supply in particular as well as the rationale for a central bank to act as banker to the commercial banks and to the government, disappears entirely. Such reforms would empty the Bank of England's role of any meaning as a national or quasi-governmental institution, whether nationalised or privately owned, with a distinctive function in the economy and a special status, that is, the central bank. It would rightfully place the bank in the same position as that of any other bank, subject to the same laws, constraints and limitations in the interests of fair and just commercial practices that the rest of the business world has to abide by. In short, the implementation of these reforms would render the distinctive functions of the central bank illegal, thereby necessitating its abolition. Under such reforms, a central bank would have no useful or positive role in the economy. The Bank of England, therefore, must be reduced to the status of a private business with the same responsibilities and obligations 
that are incumbent upon any other joint stock bank. Any claim to be a national bank by such a reform Bank of England would be purely cosmetic, not legal or economic in nature. Subsequent issues of notes would be required to state the amount and fineness of gold or silver represented by the notes. These notes would have to be fully redeemable in the denomination specified. The Bank of England would have no monopoly of note issue as exists today, and the issue of fiduciary media would be forbidden by law to the Bank of England, as would its issue by any other bank. B. Reform of the Banking System Reform of the present banking system in accordance with biblical principles of just weights and measures requires that the banks be forced to adopt honest business practices. This means that fraud in the form of fractional reserve banking must be made subject to criminal proceedings. As long as banks are able to pursue fractional reserve banking practices legally, the economy will suffer the consequences and damaging effects of the business cycle, that is, periodic recessions and depressions leading to rising unemployment and the general decline in standards of living. It is imperative, therefore, that banking reform should not end with abolition of the central bank, but that it should be pursued vigorously throughout the whole of the banking system. Banks must be denied the legal right to issue fiduciary media, that is, to issue banknotes payable on demand to the bearer in excess of the deposits reserved to redeem those notes. If a bank issues a note promising to pay the bearer on demand a certain sum in gold coin, it must always have in reserve enough gold to meet that and all other such claims. The same holds for any other form of claim for which the bank is liable, for example, checks. All forms of banking fraud must be prescribed. These reforms must be embodied in statute law. All issues over and above the reserves held by a bank should be punished by the civil authorities and appropriate restitution enforced. The effects of such reforms would be to split banking into two separate kinds of business. One, demand deposit banking, and two, investments and loans banking. In the first of these, the bank offers a place of safe deposit. In other words, it acts as a security guard for other people's money, for which it charges a fee, bank charges. In the second, it acts as a middleman, somewhat in the same way that a broker acts between the one who wishes to invest his savings and the one who wishes to borrow to finance a business enterprise, etc. In this kind of business, the bank makes its profits from the difference between the interest charged to the one who borrows from the bank and the interest paid to the depositor who places his funds at the disposal of the bank for purposes of investment. We shall now examine these two sides of legitimate banking business in turn. 1. Demand Deposit Banking A demand deposit is a sum of money deposited with a bank that can be drawn upon by means of personal written instruction to the bank, checks, or bank notes, promises to pay the bearer on demand, in other words, IOUs, without advance notice having to be given to the bank. As we have seen, reform of the banking system necessitates the proscription of fractional reserve practices as fraud. It would be illegal, therefore, for a bank to lend out deposits that can be drawn upon instantly in the form of cheques or banknotes which function in the economy in the same way that the deposits they represent would function were they in circulation. Likewise, it would be illegal for banks to use such deposits as a reserve for unbanked notes, fiduciary media. Under such conditions, it would not be possible for the bank to make a profit 
on the demand deposit side of its business except by making a charge for its services. Such charges would be fees for the safekeeping of deposits, whether these deposits are gold bullion, coin, foreign currency or any other kind of money or goods. Obviously, in such a system, the payment of interest on such deposits, which has become more common recently on certain kinds of personal current account, would disappear also. With current accounts that can be drawn upon by cheque, the payment of charges would be quite simple and pose no problems whatsoever. Charges would be payable, as they are now on trading accounts and some personal accounts. Provided the charges and current accounts are brought in along with the abandonment of fractional reserve banking, this system would be of great benefit to those who use current accounts. Under the fractional reserve system, in which banks can profit from current accounts without making charges, indeed, even while paying out small amounts of interest on them, the advantages to be gained from not having to pay banking charges or from receiving small amounts of interest on current accounts are greatly outweighed by the disadvantages arising from the constant depreciation of the value of the monetary unit, that is, loss of purchasing power, that continuous expansion of the money supply creates. The fractional reserve system enables the banks to make their profits by means of expanding the money supply and redistributing wealth from their creditors to their debtors, taking for themselves a percentage in the form of interest on the loans they advance to their debtors. Under a reform banking system in which this is forbidden, the deposit side of banking becomes a safe deposit service, which is arguably the antithesis of current banking practices. The depositor's interests are served far better with this kind of deposit, since the value of his deposit is maintained. Under such conditions, the total purchasing power of a sum of money kept in a demand deposit account over a given period of time, even allowing for deductions in the form of bank charges, would be greater than that of the same deposit plus interest kept in an interest-bearing account over the same period under the present fractional reserve system. Since the fractional reserve system is inherently inflationary and leads to the constant devaluation of currency, the use of banknotes under this reformed banking system, however, would pose certain problems. A banknote is essentially a receipt for a deposit made with a bank entitling the holder to the sum deposited on demand. Economically, there is no difference between a banknote and a cheque. The deposits represented by the banknotes would have to be stored and always available should holders of the banknotes wish to redeem them. Only under such conditions would a bank issuing notes be solvent and therefore able to meet its liabilities in the event of a run on the bank. However, since a banknote is an entitlement to a deposit, the banker, if he is to profit from issuing banknotes that are fully banked by reserves, must charge for the service of storing the deposits they represent. Those initially making deposits for which they receive banknotes to the value of the amount deposited would have to make a payment for the storage service, just as those holding current accounts would pay charges. This system would probably mean that banknotes would become dated instruments with a limited period for redemption at their nominal value. If notes circulated beyond the date of redemption at face value, the bank would only redeem them at a discount that would take account of the storage service provided after the date of maturity. This discount would increase with time. Theoretically, if left long enough, the discount for storage charges would increase until it equaled the nominal value of the note and the bank would be entitled to take the whole deposit in payment for the storage service it has provided 
at which point the note would become worthless as a claim on the deposit it originally represented. Although it is probable that such banknotes would exist, it is unlikely that they would have the same role in the economy that banknotes currently have. Banknotes might well disappear as a means of payment in everyday monetary transactions. This may seem somewhat odd and some may find it hard to imagine not having the use of banknotes, but a little reflection will show that such a change in monetary practices would not be insurmountable, nor indeed difficult to accommodate. In the first place, it should be remembered that banknotes are not essential to rational economic activity, nor to the monetary requirements of the economy. As Ludwig von Mises observed, quote, Banknotes are not indispensable. All the economic achievements of capitalism would have been accomplished if they had never existed. Besides, deposit currency can do all the things banknotes do. End quote. Second, any objection to such reforms based on arguments relating to the convenience of using banknotes is easily resolved. As Mises has argued, to the extent that banknotes are considered more convenient than coins, the public would be prepared and willing to pay a premium for their use making the issue of banknotes in exchange for deposits a chargeable service as described above. Indeed, Mises states that, quote, In the earlier days, banknotes issued by banks of unquestionable solvency stood at a slight premium as against metallic currency, end quote. He goes on to observe that, quote, Travellers, end quote, checks are rather popular because the bank issuing them charges a commission for their issuance, end quote. Moreover, any objection based on the convenience and ease of use of the banknotes, quote, does not provide a justification for the policies urging the public to resort to the use of banknotes. Governments did not foster the use of banknotes in order to avoid inconvenience to ladies' shopping. Their idea was to lower the rate of interest and to open a source of cheap credit to their treasuries. In their eyes, the increase in the quantity of fiduciary media was a means of promoting welfare, end quote. The disastrous effects of the provision of this fraudulent cheap credit to governments and the concomitant credit expansion policies of the banks is far more detrimental to the public than the inconvenience of not having the free use of banknotes. To argue that fractional reserve banking should be tolerated in order that banks might issue notes that are convenient to use without charging for their services is to strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Third, Computerized information technology has already made the use of credit and charge cards very popular, and banknotes have correspondingly ceased to play as important a role in the economy as they formerly did. With the growth of such devices and the introduction of other systems of payment, such as the switch method of accessing current accounts, again made possible by the development of computerized information technology, the use of banknotes has naturally become less frequent in any case. It is not so difficult after all, then, to imagine an economy with no, or at least very few banknotes in circulation as a means of making everyday payments. Those formerly used to making payments in banknotes, if they did not wish to pay a premium for their use to cover bank charges, would soon adjust to new conditions and methods of payment. Since the current trend is to move away from the use of banknotes and towards, quote, plastic money, end quote, for example, credit cards, bankers' cards, switch-type facilities, the introduction of 100% back-demand deposit banking would simply help to establish and encourage 
the development of a natural process that has already taken place to a considerable extent. The introduction of these reforms into the economy would provide a just and morally acceptable foundation for the growing, quote, plastic money, end quote, industry, which it presently lacks. Under present conditions, the development of computerized information technology in application to the banking and credit systems will open up far more opportunities for manipulation and control of the economy for privileged institutions, that is, governments and banks. These institutions are able to expand and contract the money supply in accordance with their own interests, to the disadvantage of the population generally, while being legally immune from prosecution. With the reform of banking practices, in accordance with Christian principles of fair weights and measures, Leviticus 19, 35-37, Deuteronomy 25, 13-16, and the application of that principle to all economic transactions, the creation, deposit and transfer of money would be bought under a strict legal code of justice with no privileged status for banks and governments and opportunity for free entry into the banking business. That is to say, the banking system would be subject to the rule of law without respect of persons. Under such conditions, the application of computerized information technology to monetary affairs and the use of, quote, plastic money, end quote, would be free to develop as far as is practicable, yet remain firmly based on sound moral and monetary principles. An opportunity for legalized fraud would be denied to those using such technology in the banking and credit industries, being inextricably linked to a banking system that operates on the fractional reserve principle. 2. Investments and loans banking. The second kind of banking practiced by the commercial banks under the system of reform set forth above would be investments and loans business. This would be based on time deposit banking. That is, deposits would be subject to withdrawal only after the lapse of a specific period of time for which the deposit is made. Once deposited, the funds would be loaned out by the bank for a specific period of time the final date for a payment falling due on the date of maturity of the original deposit. Only when the funds are returned to the bank in the form of repaid loans would the depositor be able to withdraw his deposit. Such deposits could not be subject to withdrawal on demand. They would be time deposits. But unlike demand deposits, they would bear interest. The bank would make its profit from the difference between the interest charged to its debtors, borrowers, and that paid to its creditors. Depositors. This kind of banking is investments and loans business. It is important that we understand, therefore, that depositors would be investors, and that, just as all other investments carry risks, so also there would be a certain degree of risk associated with investment in a time deposit. This risk would be that the bank's debtors, borrowers, may default on repayment of the loan on the agreed date leading either to later payment or even cancellation of the debt. In such cases, depositors, investors, could lose the interest or part of the interest on their deposit or even the whole or part of their investment. For instance, bankrupt businesses severely in debt to the bank may make it impossible for the bank to bear the whole loss associated with that particular loan and therefore the bank may have to pass on the loss to depositors either in the form of lower interest rates, loss of interest altogether, or even loss of part or the whole of the deposit. Although this is true theoretically, in practice, the degree of risk associated with investments and loans banking 
would be considerably reduced over that associated with direct investment in companies and business projects, since loans would be pooled in order to spread risks. And the bank would be expected to bear the greater part of the loss. In practice, any bank that continually made bad loans and then passed its losses on to its creditors would get a bad reputation and soon go out of business. This means that investments in the form of bank time deposits would be relatively safe, but the profits, interest made on in such deposits, would be lower than the profits made from direct investments. Those who take the greater risks receive the greater rewards, just as they are also subject to the possibility of greater losses. If no such risk is acceptable in any degree to the depositor, he would have to deposit his funds in a demand deposit account without interest and pay banking charges. These funds would not be loaned out under any conditions and would always be on call in the form of cheques or banknotes entitling the bearer to redemption on demand. The bank would not be permitted legally to use such funds for loan purposes and any such practice would be considered fraudulent. On the investment and loan side of its business, the bank would have to arrange its business carefully so that loans fell due for repayment in time for it to meet its own liabilities and contractual obligations to its creditors, depositors. In practice, the bank would pull all deposits of the same date and duration. This would rationalise the bank's investments and loans business and also spread the risks of specific loans made by the bank over a greater number of investors, depositors. If the bank's debtors, borrowers, were to default on repayments, investors might have to wait for repayment, in which case the bank could offer a higher rate of interest for the period of extended credit. The bank would, in turn, require higher rates of interest from the defaulting debtors, assuming that bankruptcies were not involved during the period of extended credit. Strictly speaking, under this kind of investments and loans business, the bank is acting on behalf of its depositors, investors, in a capacity quite different from that of a broker. Although in one sense the bank would be acting as a middleman through which its depositors' funds are invested, it is incorrect to speak of this service as that of a broker. The profit made by the bank, strictly speaking, is not a brokerage, since the depositor, investor and the borrower have neither a contractual, legal relationship with each other, with each other nor financial economic responsibilities towards each other. Both deal directly with the bank itself. Thus, a depositor invests in the bank, not the one to whom the bank lends his funds, and the debtor borrows from the bank, not the depositor. The concept of broker works as an analogy for describing the way that investments and loans banking works, but does not adequately define the nature of this kind of business. It is investment and loans banking, strictly speaking, not broking. With investments in loans banking, theoretically, a depositor who found himself in necessity and in need of the money he had invested in a time deposit would have to wait until his deposit reached maturity before he could withdraw his funds. In practice, however, there would be, in a free market economy, be various means of circumventing the situation. Upon depositing his money in an investment and loans account, the depositor would receive a certificate or note indicating the sum deposit and the date of maturity and the interest payable. According to G. North, a depositor who found himself in need of the money he had deposited would have to borrow from the bank and offer this certificate as security. 
Although this is a possible means of overcoming the problem, it is not the only alternative. These time deposit certificates themselves could be traded at a discount prior to their date of maturity, just as interest-bearing bonds are traded today. Such certificates might even have a limited function as a medium of exchange or a form of near money. The important point is that the deposit represented by a certificate does not become the basis for the creation of multiple certificates, receipts, or promises entitling the holders to the same deposit. In other words, the funds deposited are represented by one claim against them, the certificate of deposit, and the funds represented by that certificate remain a constant factor in the economy. Of course, the bank itself may agree to buy the certificate or trade it on behalf of the depositor, as is common today with stocks and shares. Banks may offer a whole range of other financial services to their customers, such as currency exchange, mortgages, financial advice, insurance, investment consultancy, etc., just as many do today. A bank would be particularly well-suited to provide such services to its customers, but these are not essentially banking services, although they are closely allied to banking services. Banks might also under a banking system organised on Christian principles, provide services for minting of coin or issue of its own denominations of coin. C. Regulation and policing of the banking system. In a banking system operating under the reforms outlined above, any reduction of a bank's reserves through the loaning out of funds accumulated in demand deposits or the issuing of multiple claims on the same deposit, fiduciary media, would be strictly illegal and punishable as fraud. The opportunity to practice such fraud would remain, however, and we must assume that in a fallen world there will be those who will exploit that opportunity. This brings us to the question of regulation and policing of banks and the punishment of banking fraud. As with public and limited companies of other kinds today, banks would be expected to keep strict records and accounts, have regular audits carried out, and make the results of these available for public inspection. Any irregularities involving banking fraud that are discovered would render the bank subject to prosecution. However, the criterion for prosecuting a bank under a 100% reserve law should not be failure to meet actual liabilities when called upon to do so, which would, for instance, be discovered by a run of the bank. Rather, the criterion should be whether the bank is, or has been, at any time insolvent due to the unauthorised loaning of funds into bank deposits or the issue of fiduciary media, regardless of whether the bank has, in fact, failed to honour its liabilities on any particular occasion, that a bank, having been through such a period of insolvency without being detected, is subsequently able to meet its liabilities and redeem all claims against it, should be no guarantee against prosecution for having reduced its reserves and issued fiduciary media during the period of insolvency should this later come to light. The fact that the bank was eventually able to meet its liabilities does not alter the fact that a fraud has been committed, with the consequent unauthorised redistribution of wealth from the bank's creditors to its debtors and to its own shareholders. To establish as the criterion for prosecution the actual failure of the bank to redeem its liabilities when called upon to do so, rather than its having abandoned at any time the 100% reserve requirement established in law, would be essentially to prosecute the bank not for fraud, but for the failure to get away with fraud. It is for this reason, therefore, 
that the banks must keep meticulous records and accounts, hold regular audits, and make them available for public inspection. Failure to do this would automatically cast suspicion on the bank in question. This point is important since, amongst the proponents of free banking, there are those who would not require 100% reserves by law and would leave regulation of the banking system entirely to the free market. That is to say, to the bank's ability to manage their affairs so that they can meet their liabilities when required to do so by their creditors. Under such a system, banks would be free to pursue fractional reserve practices provided they did not become so insolvent that they could not withstand a run on their reserves and prosecution would follow only when a bank failed to honour its notes. It is argued that such a system would result in more responsible banking practices than exist currently under a central banking system, since individual banks, fearing for their reputation and wishing to avoid a run on their reserves, would exercise greater caution in the issue of fiduciary media. Regulation would be assured by the bank's desire to remain in business by avoiding the situation in which it could not meet its liabilities. Any bank that was even suspected of not being able to honour its notes would be considered untrustworthy by the public and hence would most likely go out of business. This is of course entirely true as far as it goes but it does not get to the heart of the problem. It is essentially an argument for a system that aims at less fraud not the elimination of fraud at least as a legitimate practice. A good analysis of the arguments in favour of this kind of system is provided by V.C. Smith the rationale of central banking and the free banking alternative. As can be seen from the title of the book, the context of V.C. Smith's analysis is the relative merits of such a free banking system as against the demerits of a central banking system. The argument set forth for free banking is essentially a libertarian, pragmatic argument, not a moral argument. While there would be in a Christian theory of banking significant areas of agreement with V.C. Smith's arguments for free banking, and especially with her critique of the inefficiency of a central banking system, the amoral philosophy underpinning her analysis and the libertarian conclusion she draws about how banking should be practiced would be unacceptable. It is important to note that it is the very lack of a moral foundation for the free banking argument as V.C. Smith presents it, and indeed, in the whole libertarian argument for free banking, that ultimately is the Achilles heel of a banking system as conceived by the free banking school. Granted, its merits make it far superior to a central banking system, but its demerit is still that it accepts as legitimate in principle and therefore would permit the fraudulent creation of money through fractional reserve banking practices and hence the inflationary redistribution of wealth from a bank's creditors to its shareholders and debtors. Opposition to this practice in principle, and thus in all its possible manifestations, can only be mounted from a moral perspective, and it is the denial of the moral dimension that vitiates the libertarian argument and leads to its failure to prescribe, or even to provide, a rationale for prescribing, in principle rather than merely in excess, the creation of fiduciary media. This will become apparent if we look at some of the libertarian arguments for free banking as conceived by V.C. Smith and Ludwig von Mises. Smith defines free banking in the following way, quote, Free banking, end quote, denotes a regime 
where note-issuing banks are allowed to set up in the same way as any other type of business enterprise, so long as they comply with the general company law. The requirement for their establishment is not special conditions authorised from a government authority, but the ability to raise sufficient capital and public confidence to gain acceptance for their notes and ensure the profitability of the undertaking. Under such a system, all banks would not only be allowed the same rights, but would also be subjected to the same responsibilities as other business enterprises. If they failed to meet their obligations, they would be declared bankrupt and put into liquidation and their assets used to meet the claims of their creditors, in which case the shareholders would lose the whole or part of their capital and the penalty for failure would be paid, at least for the most part, by those responsible for the policy of the bank. Notes issued under this system would be, quote, promises to pay, unquote, and such obligations must be met on demand in a generally accepted medium, which we will assume to be gold. No bank would have the right to call on the government or any other institution for special help in time of need. No bank would be able to give its notes force currency by declaring them to be legal tender for all payments, and it is unlikely that the public would accept inconvertible notes of any such banking except at a discount varying with the prospect of their again becoming convertible. A general abandonment of the gold standard is inconceivable under these conditions, and with strict interpretation of the bankruptcy laws, any bank suspending payments would at once be put into the hands of a receiver. End quote. Free banking, as conceived here by V.C. Smith, leaves the door open to the creation of fiduciary media, that is, claims for money on demand, banknotes, issued in excess of the stock of specie reserved to meet those claims. Smith goes on to rehearse the arguments in favour of this kind of free banking system, a system in which fiduciary media is issued in moderation rather than in excess. Quote, The free banking party laid particular stress on another check which they contended worked automatically through the reciprocal claims of the banks upon each other's reserves. Any bank will continually be receiving payments from customers, either in payment of loans or in the form of cash being paid in on deposit. In a system where all banks are competitors for business, one bank will not be prepared to pay out over its own counter the notes of rival banks, but will return them to their issuers through the clearing process. It is therefore to be supposed that if one bank expands out of step with the rest, the clearing balances will go against it and its rivals will draw out its gold reserves to the extent of its adverse balance. This mechanism would work at a much earlier stage than the external drain of gold and would cause the reserves to feel the effects of expansion almost immediately. It is unlikely that all banks will decide in concert to decrease their reserve ratios and the bigger the conservative group which is not desirous of so doing, the stronger will be the check of these on the expansion of the other group. A bank which contemplates an expansion has got to take into account not only the direct effects on its reserve ratio, which comes about in the first instance when it increases its issue against the same absolute total reserve as before, but also the indirect effect occasioned by the withdrawal of cash to other banks. The size of the addition it can afford to make to its loans on the basis of a given drop in its service ratio will be correspondingly reduced and its action will react partly to the benefit of the other banks who secure an accretion to their reserves. While admitting that circumstances 
may occur in which the majority of the banks are willing to allow some reduction in their reserve ratios, it is unlikely that they will ever risk fluctuations or dimensions anything like as great as those which are viewed with comparative equanimity by the central bank. End quote. The argument here is essentially for a banking system that is likely to have less serious effects on the money supply. The severity of the business cycle would be considerably reduced under such a system, but fractional reserve banking is still accepted as a legitimate practice in moderation. It is only excessive expansion that this kind of free banking mechanism seeks to eradicate, and only when a bank fails to redeem its notes will the receiver be called in. Ludwig von Mises also argued for this kind of free banking system. Quote, Free banking is the only method available for the prevention of the dangers inherent in credit expansion. It would, it is true, not hinder a slow credit expansion, kept within very narrow limits on the part of cautious banks which provide the public with all information required about their financial status. But under free banking, it would have been impossible for credit expansion with all its inevitable consequences, to have developed into a regular, one is tempted to say normal, feature of the economic system. Only free banking would have rendered the market economy secure against crises and depressions. One would not wish to argue with Mises' contention that only free banking would render the market economy secure against crises and depressions, that is, runs on banks and the business cycle, in the context of a comparison of free banking with a state or central bank-controlled banking system. But this particular kind of free banking system, in which there is still the possibility of banks legally creating fiduciary media or expanding credit in the form of bank money, will not protect the economy fully. It simply reduces the extent of the problem. A free banking system is certainly necessary for a sound economic order, but On its own, it is not enough. The economy must be underpinned by a legal order that proscribes banking fraud. That is, for example, fractional reserve banking in principle, and therefore even the, quote, slow credit expansion kept within very narrow limits on the part of cautious banks, end quote, that Mises' system would permit. Mises is led to accept this possibility of, quote, slow credit expansion kept within very narrow limits on the part of cautious banks, end quote, because he opposes the legal requirement of 100% reserves. His reason for this is that a legal requirement of 100% reserves by the state establishes a dangerous precedent for state regulation of banking practices that could, in exceptional circumstances, be used to sanction the lowering of the reserve requirement by the state. If the state can require 100% reserves by law, a precedent is set for the state's interference with the banking practice and it can, when it suits its purposes to do so, lower this legal requirement to 80%, then to 60% and so on, thereby opening the door to excessive credit expansion with banks legally protected by the state. Mises writes, quote, If banks are preserved as privileged establishments subject to special legislative provisions, the tool remains that governments can use for fiscal purposes. Then, every restriction imposed upon the issuance of fiduciary media depends upon the government's and the parliament's good intentions. They may limit the issuance for periods which are called normal, 
the restriction will be withdrawn whenever the government deems that an emergency justifies resorting to extraordinary measures. If an administration and the party backing it want to increase expenditure without jeopardising their popularity through the imposition of higher taxes, they will always be ready to call their impasse an emergency. Recourse to the printing press and to the obsequiousness of bank managers willing to oblige the authorities regulating their conduct of affairs is the foremost means of governments eager to spend money for which the taxpayers are not ready to pay higher taxes. End quote. One can readily appreciate Mises's fears. He has drawn attention to a danger inherent in attributing too much power to the state. However, it is here that the libertarian argument goes astray. There is a legitimate role for the state, and it is not to be established in terms of pragmatism, but in terms of morality. The state is a ministry of public justice. It is precisely to issues such as fraud that the state has respect. Mises's conclusion that the state cannot be trusted is not valid if the role of the state is restricted to that of a ministry of public justice and the requirement of 100% reserves based on a moral argument, namely the necessity of prescribing fraud. A transgression of the Eighth Commandment, which is always and under any conditions an injustice and a legitimate area for state intervention. But it is precisely the moral dimension that Mises drains out of his analysis. Hence, we are left with the alternatives of either the totalitarian state exercising power without moral authority, or the banks, equally without moral authority, practising fraud in moderation. Mises chooses the latter, as I should if I had only those options. But these are not the only options available. The state has a legitimate role to play as a ministry of public justice, as a terror to those who practice evil, Romans 13, 3 and 4. Its rationale is the moral argument for bringing to justice and punishing those who commit evil, not a pragmatic argument based on considerations of what is the greatest good for the greatest number, which in this case, that is, free banking, as conceived by V.C. Smith and Mises, involves the justification of a little evil, moderate credit expansion, committed by a few, the banks. We must conclude, therefore, that a 100% reserve should be established as a legal requirement by the state and that all known infringements should be punished by the courts. Once a bank has created demand claims over and above its reserves, that is, once it issues fiduciary media, it is insolvent, though the public may be unaware of this. Irrespective of whether the bank subsequently restores its reserve ratio to 100% and is able to meet its liabilities, the period of insolvency constitutes an inflationary fraud in which wealth is redistributed from the bank's creditors to its shareholders and debtors. Banks that are known to have pursued such inflationary policies, regardless of whether the fraud is discovered during the period of insolvency or afterwards, should be prosecuted and required to make restitution according to biblical principles of compensation. One further point should perhaps be discussed here briefly. Any successful prosecution of a bank for fraud under a 100% reserve law would probably have the effect of rendering the bank untrustworthy in the estimation of prudent investors. If the payment of compensation awarded by the courts does not lead to the bank being forced into liquidation, its prospects for continued business would be severely limited. However, in a fallen world where men love sin rather than justice, we cannot assume that such prosecution will always result in a bank going out of business. 
certainly severe, sustained and multiple infringements of the law leading to prosecution and conviction would be likely to have a detrimental effect on the bank's reputation and ability to continue trading even if restitution awarded to victims did not lead to closure. However, there are in any society those who cannot secure loans from reputable banks, perhaps because their businesses are considered unlikely to be successful or because they themselves have had debts or insufficient security to offer. A bank whose reputation has been tarnished by a successful prosecution for banking fraud and is suffering the effects of distrust by prudent investors may be able to ameliorate its trading position by loaning money to such people at higher rates of interest and by offering higher rates of interest on time deposits. The problem envisioned here is not the uncertainty of the business taken on by the bank or the increased risk to depositors, but simply the fact that a convicted fraud is continuing to trade. The question may arise as to whether such convicted banking frauds should be allowed to continue in business and whether banks should be licensed in some way as a means of controlling the situation and protecting the unsuspecting public. Any call to license banks, however, should be resisted, provided appropriate restitution is made and all obligations falling upon a bank as a result of a conviction for fraud or discharge, it should be allowed to continue in business if there is sufficient custom to make its continuance possible. There should be free entry into the banking trade just as there should be into any other form of business. No burdens should be imposed on those entering banking other than those of honesty and fairness in the use of weights and measures, which are required in all commercial ventures. Entry into banking should be free from the necessity of obtaining state licences, charters and free from government regulation except for the requirement of honesty and fair weights and measures, which would mean that 100% reserves should be maintained at all times. As in any other business, a bankrupt bank, once it has discharged its debts, may return to business. It is no more reasonable to impose the necessity of obtaining licences and charters in banking than it is in greengrocery or any other form of business. Section 5. Free Coinage and Abolition of the Royal Mint Along with abolition of the central bank and the cessation of the printing of fiat paper money by the government or its agencies, it will be necessary to end all government control on coinage. This means that it would no longer be the responsibility of the government to issue coin in any form. The government mint should therefore be closed. This would also mean the end of, quote, coin of the realm, end quote, that is, coin that is intended to function within a particular political jurisdiction as legal tender. The minting of coin should be the right of all private individuals, companies and groups, but strictly forbidden to the government, whose sole function is the administration of public justice. The role of the government in respect to the minting of coin should be the policing of coinage, that is, to ensure that coin is of its stated weight and fineness, and that those guilty of debasing the coinage are brought to justice and punished accordingly. The history of government monopoly of coinage is a history of debasement and fraud. Whenever governments have assumed the authority to issue money in any form, debasement has usually followed. Government abuse of standard of fairness and justice in the issuance of money has been relentless throughout much of history. As soon as difficulties arise, governments attempt to resolve their problems 
by granting themselves special powers under which they can legally, though never morally, debase the currency and force people to use this debased currency by passing legal tender laws. As time has passed, our governments have ceased to maintain even the semblance of honesty and fairness in their monopoly of the money supply, and the idea that governments should not be permitted to monopolize and manipulate the money supply is today considered, at best, quaint and naive. In 1920, the silver coinage in Britain was debased to contain only 50% silver. The last coins to be issued with a content of 92.5% silver were struck between 1911 and 1918 and 1919. In 1947, the silver coin was replaced totally by a token coin consisting of 75% copper and 25% nickel. Prior to 1914, a gold coin was in circulation in the United Kingdom and Bank of England notes were convertible into gold. The political tension caused by the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria in June 1914 led to a run on the British pound, and the Bank of England reserves fell significantly. As a result, the Bank Charter Act of 1844, which limited the amount of fiduciary media that the Bank of England was permitted to issue, was suspended and the Currency and Banknotes Act was passed, authorising the government to issue fiat currency in £1 and 10 shillings notes. A paper currency of 2.5 million one-pound treasury notes, known as Bradbury's, since they bore the signature of John Bradbury, chief clerk to the treasury, was issued by the government. C.R. Josset comments, quote, Britain, as guarantor, immediately honoured her obligations once the Germans entered Belgian territory. This attempt to invade France by a surprise route culminated in Britain declaring war on Germany on the day after August bank holiday, Tuesday, 4th of August, 1914. For the remainder of that week, the banks and stock exchanges remained closed. There was much foreboding on the possibility of runs in the banks when they opened on the following Monday, but the situation remained surprisingly calm and, after a few hours, it was seen that the fears were quite unfounded. The Currency and Banknotes Act proved a successful measure, although in theory, all these notes were convertible to gold. In theory only, because had everyone claimed their gold, there would not have been enough to go around. SCP The Patriotism of the People Why talk about fraud when the victim is a patriot? SCP caused him to be accepted, even though the majority had not seen paper money before, as banks transferred gold to the Bank of England and accepted paper money in payment. Gold virtually disappeared from circulation. In Scotland and Ireland, likewise, the banks paid in notes only. Nevertheless, it was known that a large quantity of gold coins was still in the hands of the public, which, it was suspected, was hoarding them in the expectation that sovereigns would be of greater value than the currency notes. It was decided to make the melting down of coin an offence, and various shipping restrictions were imposed, making it unremunerative to send gold abroad. End quote. Thus, our money ceased to be a precious metal-based currency and became instead a paper, fiat and token coin currency. In 1925, Britain went into a gold bullion standard, which lasted until 1931. The difference between this and the old gold standard 
was simply that notes could be redeemed for bullion in bars of 400 ounces of fine gold. But gold coin did not circulate as a medium of exchange, as it had done before 1914. H. O. Meredith describes the situation. Quote, it was not until 1925 that conditions permitted the restoration advocated. But in that year, the Gold Standard Act was passed, giving the country again a gold standard, but with noteworthy modifications upon that before 1914. Gold coins were not again to come into circulation. The actual currency was to remain entirely token, the sovereigns and half-sovereigns being replaced by the Treasury Pound and 10-shilling notes. It was contemplated that later, as usually came to pass in 1928, the whole of the fiduciary media would be handed over to the Bank of England, which would issue new pound and ten shilling notes. But there was a free market for gold, so that there could be no divergence in purchasing power between the paper and the gold it purported to represent. Under the Act, the metal could be taken to the Bank of England, where the gold was bought at a fixed price per ounce, slightly below its parity with the sovereign, and the Bank of England was bound to sell gold at a fixed price for legal tender money, that is to say, for banknotes. This price, £3.17, shillings, 10.5d per ounce of standard gold, was exactly that of the mint price of gold. There was parity between the pound and the 113 grains of fine gold that would have made a sovereign. But this gold was sold only in bars containing approximately 400 ounces of fine gold. The gold, therefore, could hardly come into circulation and we could describe that situation as that of a gold bullion standard. In 1931, a severe run on the Bank of England led to the abandonment of the gold bullion standard. The Bank of England lost around 32 million in a few weeks. Parliament therefore passed a bill releasing the Bank of England from its obligation to sell gold. Had government pursued its proper function, that is, the administration of public justice, which in respect to currency means the duty to prosecute those who use unjust weights and measures or who debase the currency, our currency today would still consist of precious metal or notes fully redeemable in specie. Once government has gained a monopoly control over the currency, however, the temptation to use this monopoly for the government's own ends usually proves irresistible. It is vital for the development of a stable monetary system, therefore, that the minting of coin, as well as the issue of paper currency, be taken out of the hands of the state altogether, and the role of the state in monetary affairs limited to the administration of public justice. That is, the duty to ensure that fair weights and measures prevail in the minting of coin, and that fraud is punished. The law as it stands today with regards to the minting of coin does not permit private individuals or private mints to issue coin intended to function as money. The Coinage Act 1971 states, quote, No piece of gold, silver, copper or bronze, or of any metal or mixed metal, of any value whatever, shall be made or issued except by, or with the authority of, the mint, as a coin or a token for money, or as purporting that the holder thereof is entitled to demand any value denoted thereon, end quote. Those who contravene this section of the Act are, quote, liable on summary conviction to a fine not exceeding £20, end quote. The Act also forbids the melting down or break-up 
of any coin that is current in the United Kingdom or, quote, having been current, has at any time after the 16th of May 1969 ceased to be so, end quote. The penalty cited for doing so is a fine of up to £400 or two years imprisonment, or both. Both aspects of this law, the outlawing of free coinage and the prohibition on the melting down or break-up of coin of the realm, constitute a fundamental denial of the individual's freedom over his own property. This law denies to the individual the right to dispose of his own property as he thinks fit and reserves control of the most important form of property in the economy, that is, the common medium of exchange, solely solely to the government in order that it might have the ability to debase and expand the money supply for its own ends. Any government that denies the individual's rights of ownership over the money rightfully in his possession, no matter how vociferous it might be in claiming the ideology of freedom, consumer choice and free markets, has, in principle, ultimately denied the individual's right of private ownership over any and all property, since once the government has a monopolistic control over currency, it is able to control and expropriate the wealth of the nation. No matter what the private individual has legal possession of or title to, the government is able, by means of monetary debasement, to take his wealth from him. It is for this very purpose that governments demand such monopoly of the money supply. To deny the full rights of ownership over the money in one's possession, the right to dispose of it as one thinks fit, to break it up, melt it down or recoin it, is to deny ultimately man's economic freedom. It is in principle to enslave man to the state and an assertion of the power of eminent domain, the doctrine that at all property within the nation belongs ultimately to the state, which reserves the right of expropriation. When the conditions are right, governments that do not order their affairs by the light of God's law will, notwithstanding their claims on the ideology of freedom, put this principle into operation for their own ends. If the economic history of the 20th century has taught us anything, it is surely this. It is important, therefore, that the reforms to be implemented in this area along with the limitation of the state's role in monetary affairs to that of the administration of public justice, should be established in law. Reform must ensure that government mints and government fiat money are declared illegal and abolished and the right of free coinage recognised in law. As with banks, private mints would be businesses subject to company law in the same way that any other commercial enterprise is. There would be no special privileges granted to mints, no officially sanctioned coin of the realm with legal tender status, and no government-granted monopolies or licenses. Entry into the business of minting coin would be open to all, the only regulations being those respecting the use of fair weights and measures. Coin would have to contain its stated weight and fineness of precious metal. All attempts to debase coinage would be legally defined as fraud, and the perpetrators of such liable to prosecution and to make restitution to their victims according to biblical principles of justice and compensation. The incentive to maintain fair weights and measures would be provided in the free market by competition. E. L. Hebden Taylor writes, quote, Any debasement of these private coins would be prosecuted to the limit of the law. 
Thus, the private mints would find it to their advantage to keep continual watch over each other's gold and silver coins, calling attention to any sign of fraud. By eliminating the present state monopoly of coinage, private competition would act as a safeguard to monetary fraud and the printing of worthless dollar bills. End quote. Section 6. Tax Reform The growth of government power and influence over the lives of the British people during the 20th century has been immense. This growth of the state has meant the increasing politicisation of society. Along with this, there has been an inevitable loss of individual freedom, the effect of which has been to change the individual's way of life significantly, indeed, to change the essential character of the British way of life nationally. Even on a purely economic level, the effects of this loss of freedom have been enormous, since it has impeded the operation of the free market to such an extent that economic growth and social amelioration in the 20th century have been substantially curtailed, to the detriment of all in society. The stifling growth of laws and regulations in virtually all areas of life over the past 50 years is now being supplemented on a prodigious scale by the legislature of the European Union. This growth of government influence over and regulation of life has involved also, and inevitably, the growth of both the bureaucracy and the attendant social services deemed necessary to implement government policies and programmes. All this has to be financed, of course. As a result, by 1993, British government spending accounted for over 43% of the gross national product. The funds needed to finance this massive government bureaucracy and the allied social service industry, both of which are unproductive from an economic point of view, have been raised by means of various forms of taxation and by public borrowing. This places a heavy burden on the productive sectors of the economy, which create the wealth of the nation. Such heavy penalising of economic productivity has had serious consequences for the economy, since its effect is to create a disincentive to create wealth. As a result, instead of pursuing the acquisition of wealth by means of productivity, many turn to political means of acquiring wealth, for example, by seeking to affect government economic policy via the activities of lobbying groups or union representation, the aim of which is to secure government concessions, special privileges and government subsidies and protection for the companies or industries that are represented by such groups. The purpose of such activities and groups is to control wealth created by others rather than to create wealth. Such measures are inevitably irrational and unproductive from the economic point of view and in turn require government funding which has to be raised by taxation and borrowing monetization of debt that the latter entails. This further suppresses the incentive to be economically productive and encourages more lobbying for government handouts as a means of acquiring wealth. As a consequence, the economy is pushed further down a negative economic spiral that ultimately leads to decapitalization and decline in standards of living and welfare. The economy cannot sustain this increasing politicization of society. The goose that lays the golden eggs is being strangled to death by taxes. The disincentive to be economically productive that this process creates, that is to say, 
the incentive to seek control over the wealth that already exists, rather than to create wealth, will eventually reach a critical point and the nation will begin to develop economic problems similar to those experienced by many third world and ex-Soviet nations. Productivity will begin to fall at a rate that will make our present standard of living impossible to sustain. Except where black markets are able to flourish, the nation will become almost totally dependent on an economy dominated by state-run, though not necessarily state-owned, industries and programs, that is, a fascist state. This will mean the creation of a proletariat that is virtually enslaved to an unproductive and wasteful state-controlled economic system. The consequences of such an organisation of economic life by the state are all too clear from the Soviet debacle. Of course, we have not yet reached this stage in Britain, nor generally in the West. But the nation is being prepared for such a scenario with every step towards assimilation into the European superstate that our politicians take. It is vital, therefore, that this trend should be reversed. In order to do this, we need to cut off from the state the source of funding that fuels this malady. Growth of government power and influence and the army of bureaucrats and ever-expanding social services that accompany this process can only be funded because the government is able to appropriate the wealth of the nation without the ability to expropriate the wealth of the individual and thus the resources of the nation. The state cannot pursue such totalitarian policies. Assuming that the state does not resort to outright plunder, there are two ways in which it can expropriate the wealth of the nation while maintaining a facade of illegality. First, by means of fiscal policies, for example, taxation, and secondly, by means of monetary policy, for example, monetization of government debt, expansion of the money supply. The latter as we have seen, is both immoral and extremely damaging in its effects on the economy. Reform of government, according to biblical principles, must ensure, therefore, that all such methods of raising revenue are proscribed and governments forced to fund their business by means of fiscal policy. The economic reforms discussed so far in this chapter would have two very important effects on government business that would lead to significant changes in the economy. First, the government would be forced to stop monetizing its debt, adopt sound fiscal policies and balance its budget or else declare itself bankrupt. Secondly, government would be forced to raise its revenues by taxation. Taxpayers, therefore, would be able to assess much more easily how much the government is costing them to maintain. If government required greater revenues, it would be forced to raise taxes since the government would no longer be able to monetize its debt thereby inflating the money supply and enabling it to make repayment in debased currency. It would be unlikely to borrow, except perhaps in extreme emergencies. Any money the government did borrow would have to be repaid, with interest, which would necessitate even higher taxes in the end. This would have the knock-on effect of encouraging the electorate to vote for responsible governments, since it would be apparent that it is in the electorate's own financial interests to make sure that the state limited its role in spending as much as possible. Government, therefore, would no longer be able to finance its profligate policies by theft in the form of debased or devalued currency and by monetizing its debts. It would be forced to behave honestly and responsibly 
or face the consequence of losing an election and, in the case of bankruptcy, even prosecution and the necessity of making restitution to its creditors. The question still remains, however, as to what the valid limits of government fiscal policy are. That is to say, to what extent the state is morally entitled to tax the nation. In order to answer this question, we need to understand the biblical teaching on the function and limits of civil government. The function of the civil government, according to scripture, is the administration of public justice, the execution of God's vengeance on those who commit evil, Romans 13, 4. And in doing this, the Apostle Paul tells us, magistrates are to be servants of God, Romans 13, 6. Thus, the function of the magistrate is to see that crime, as defined by God's law, is punished, the innocent protected, and law and order preserved in society. It is, quote, for this cause, end quote, that is, the administration of justice, says Paul, quote, that we pay taxes, end quote. And in order to drive his point home, he adds that it is the duty of the magistrate to be, quote, continually attending to this very thing, end quote, that is, to this thing and no other, Romans 13, 6. It is for the purpose of upholding justice and punishing criminals, therefore, and not for other purposes, that the magistrate is supported by taxes, according to Christian teaching. The limits of the magistrate's authority to levy taxes is established by biblical precedent. As creator and sovereign of the universe, God possesses eminent domain over the whole earth. As king, God exercises that sovereignty by taxing the increase of man's hands. This tax is a tithe, a tenth of the increase. Leviticus 27, 30-34, Daniel 14, 22. Two important principles follow from this fact. First, the civil magistrate may only levy taxes legitimately on the increase, that is, on net profits. Since God, as sovereign of the universe, requires a tax on increase only, a fortiori, the magistrate also may only levy taxes on the increase. The civil government may not tax property and inheritance. Compare 1 Kings 21, 1-19. By implication, also, sales tax is not permissible since it is indiscriminate and therefore cannot be applied in such a way that the biblical requirements of taxing increase only would be satisfied. Secondly, since as sovereign, God requires only a tenth of the increase, a fortiori, no subordinate human no subordinate human authority may claim more than a tenth or even a tenth, since to do so would be to claim an authority and jurisdiction over man, God's creature, that is superior or at least equal to God's. For magistrates, kings, or civil governments to exact a tithe or more from their subjects or to tax property and increase is rebellion against God the rejection of his sovereignty, an assertion of human autonomy, and the usurpation of God's authority over man. This understanding of the limit of the state's authority and power to raise taxes is confirmed by Scripture. The Torah forbade the kings of Israel to acquire great wealth, 
Deuteronomy 17, 17. The king's economic means, and therefore his power, was limited by God's law. The private property of the people of Israel was protected by the Eighth Commandment, which applied to the magistrate as much as to any other person or institution. Compare 1 Kings 21, 1-19. In 1 Samuel 8, 4-18, an evil and oppressive king, on account of whom the people cry out to God for deliverance, verse 18, is described as one who exacts a tithe from the people, verses 15, 17, who taxes property, verses 14, 16, and who uses conscription as a means of staffing his army and household, verses 12 to 14. The kind of state machinery envisioned here, though conspicuously modest compared with modern Western standards, is clearly understood to be beyond what is morally acceptable for a ruler to impose upon his subjects. And there is obviously an element of judgment involved on account of the people's rejection of God as king. Verse 7 For the magistrate or civil government to claim to have an equal share with God, a tithe is evil and oppressive, and God's judgment on a rebellious nation. This means that the most that the state may take in taxation is a second tithe, that is, a tenth of the remainder after the first tithe, which belongs to God, has been deducted from the increase. This puts the total that the state may legitimately claim at 9% income tax. This tax may only be levied on increase, that is, net income, and therefore the state may not tax property or inheritance without exceeding its God-ordained jurisdiction and authority. For the state to demand anything above this second tithe is to overturn the Christian social order revealed in Scripture. It is also to render unto Caesar the things that belong to God, since God alone has total claim on man's life and property, and he requires in tribute 10% of the increase of man's hands. Because the Bible limits the function of the civil government, the state to the administration of public justice, the level of taxation needed to fund government on the biblical model is far lower than needed to fund the governments of modern Western states. A taxation level of well below 9% income tax is a realistic and achievable goal for a Christian government that functions within the biblically defined limits of its jurisdiction and authority. Moreover, not only are limited government and limited taxation and thus greater individual freedom, possible and beneficial to the individual and society generally, they were both the norm in Britain until well into the second decade of the 20th century. H.A.P. Taylor commented on the limited nature of government and the low level of taxation, below 8% of the national income, prior to World War I, even though government did not confine itself exclusively to the administration of justice. Quote, until August 1914, a sensible, law-abiding Englishman could pass through life and hardly notice the existence of the state beyond the post office and the policeman. He could live where he liked and as he liked. He had no official number or identity card. He could travel abroad or leave his country forever without a passport or any sort of official permission. He could exchange his money for any other currency 
without restriction or limit. He could buy goods from any country in the world on the same terms as he bought goods at home. For that matter, a foreigner could spend his life in this country without permit and without informing the police. Unlike the countries of the European continent, the state did not require its citizens to perform military service. An Englishman could enlist, if he chose, in the regular army, the navy or the territorials. He could also ignore, if he chose, the demands of national defence. Substantial householders were occasionally called on for jury service. Otherwise, only those helped the state who wished to do so. The Englishman paid taxes on a modest scale. Nearly £200 million in 1913 to 1914, or rather less than 8% of the national income. The state intervened to prevent the citizen from eating adulterated food or contracting infectious diseases. It imposed safety rules in factories and prevented women and adult males in some industries from working excessive hours. The state saw to it that children received education up to the age of 13. Since the 1st of January 1909, it provided a meagre pension for the needy over the age of 70. Since 1911, it helped to ensure certain classes of workers against sickness and unemployment. This tendency towards more state action was increasing. Expenditure on the social services had roughly doubled since the Liberals took office in 1905. Still, broadly speaking, the state acted only to help those who could not help themselves. It left the adult citizen alone. End quote. It is difficult to avoid the conclusion, even from a cursory examination of the evidence, that the growth of big government, totalitarianism, and of socialism generally, has been inversely proportionate to the decline of the Christian faith as a vital force in the life of the nation. Modern British governments take more than four times the amount in taxation that the Lord of all creation requires in tithes. This wealth is expropriated from the nation in various ways. Income tax, national insurance contributions, sales tax, capital gains tax, corporation tax, tariffs, excise duties and public borrowing. The latter borrowing represents one of the more absurd aspects of government policy. In 1992, the government raised nearly 11.5% of its revenues from borrowing. It spent more on funding this debt in interest payments, 7% of total expenditure, than it did on law and order, 5.5% of total expenditure, and nearly as much as on defence, just over 9.5% of total expenditure. It is essential, therefore, if the nation is to conform to biblical principles of government that taxation should be reformed. The increasing politicisation of life that has occurred over the past century can only be stopped if the funding that supports the level of government that makes it possible is cut off. By limiting taxation to 9% income tax, and this is the maximum permitted by God's word, not an ideal target, this state will be unable to pursue its oppressive policies and state control and regulation of life and society will begin to recede. But there is more to this than the moral argument, decisive as that argument is. It is just as necessary for 
economic reasons that the state reduced taxation rates to an upper limit of 9% income tax. When the state seizes control of the nation's wealth to the extent that it has done in Britain over the past century, economic activity becomes increasingly irrational and standards of living are inevitably affected for the worse. If the nation is to experience once again economic growth and social amelioration on the scale that was achieved in the period of the Industrial Revolution and after, indeed, if the nation is even to maintain its present level of economic prosperity, it is essential that taxation should be reformed and reduced to levels that will allow economic initiative to be rewarded and thus flourish. It will be necessary, therefore, to abolish inheritance tax, property tax, capital gains tax, graduated income tax, national insurance contributions, corporation tax and all other forms of direct taxation over and above the second tithe on increase, 9% income tax discussed above, which is the maximum that the state may take. Such taxes are economically irrational since they penalise the creation of wealth and drive those who excel in creating opportunities for economic growth out of the country. In other words, they benefit the indolent at the expense of the industrious and therefore discourage the creation of wealth. Furthermore, the amount of revenue that excessive taxation of the quote, rich unquote, brings into the public purse is quite insignificant. Most tax revenues are raised from the types of taxes typically paid by the middle and working classes. The real purpose of taxing the rich disproportionately is simply to appease the envy of those classes that traditionally support socialist governments. Their effect is totally negative and detrimental to economic growth and social amelioration. They are, moreover, in terms of biblical ethics, fundamentally unjust and perverse. It is equally necessary for economic and moral reasons that all forms of indirect taxation should be abolished. These reforms must also embrace all forms of local taxation. Local taxes should be limited to raising sufficient revenue to fund the administration of public justice. Public utilities should be privatised or turned into public trusts. As stated above, overall taxation including local taxes, should not exceed the value of a second tithe on increase, that is, 9% of income tax. As we have seen, this is because God, who has a prior claim on man's life and wealth, demands only a tithe, 10% of increase. For the state to claim as much or more is an attempt to usurp God's sovereignty over man, society and the nation. Tax reforms on the scale envisioned here would have significant effects on many groups and individuals presently in the employment of government agencies or in receipt of government subsidies and welfare. The end aimed at, however, would be advantageous for all in society, even for the deliberate welfare scrounger, since it would force him to work for a living, thereby giving him a more useful and meaningful existence. The result would be a more productive economy, and higher standards of living across the whole of society. However, this is not to deny that were changes on this scale to be introduced too suddenly, they would create a considerable amount of disruption 
and difficulty for many. It is important, therefore, that such reforms should be introduced gradually into the economy and alternative institutions and welfare organisations, for example, churches and charities, encouraged to step in and provide essential welfare services for those genuinely deserving of such and who presently rely on state welfare. Only to the extent that this latter development takes place in tandem with government reform and withdrawal from the economy will it be possible to mitigate the undesirable effects of such changes for those who are most vulnerable in society. It is vital that the Church, especially, should begin to take its responsibilities in this area seriously by teaching biblical principles of welfare and by providing welfare ministries to those who are genuinely in need and without the support of their family, which is the primary welfare agency in a Christian society. 1 Timothy 5, 1-16 Furthermore, as the state withdraws from this area, the beneficial effects of increased provision of welfare by the family and by institutions such as the church and Christian charities would be far greater than merely the provision of the necessary level of continuity for the deserving poor. Such a change in administration of alms for the poor and needy would involve also a shift in the predominant philosophy of welfare and a reassessment of the criteria for determining the need for and level of provision required in terms of fundamental Christian values. Such welfare, since it would be administered within a personal and ethically informed environment, would significantly reduce welfare abuse, which is inevitable with anonymous state welfare programs. This would release further resources for welfare for those who are genuinely poor and force many to take responsibility for their own lives rather than being dependent on handouts. Such welfare tends also to be improving both morally and economically in its effects on recipients since it is tied, or at least should be tied, to Christian mission, evangelism and the Christian work ethic, that is, that those who refuse to work should not eat. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 The effect of abolishing government welfare programs by cutting off the tax revenues that fund them and replacing them with private and church-run initiatives would be not only to secure a more efficient administration of welfare for the deserving poor, it would also stimulate economic activity in accordance with Christian principles. For example, 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 as a means of provision for many of those presently receiving state welfare. Moreover, by reducing taxation to morally and economically acceptable levels, such reforms would alleviate many of the problems of the so-called quote, poverty trap, end quote, which could perhaps more accurately be called the quote, state welfare trap, unquote, since this is partly caused by levels of taxation that penalise people on low wages to such an extent that it is more profitable for them to claim welfare. This in itself would provide a much-needed stimulus to the economy, as well as helping to alleviate the economic problems caused by high levels of taxation. Instead of a spiral downwards in economic activity and the concomitant increase in claims on government revenue as a means of acquiring wealth, we should see in its place a continual spiral upwards based on the creation of wealth, that is, greater use of human resources and increasing capitalization, leading to higher standards of living. 
Rather than the short-term impression of prosperity created by government-managed expansion of the money supply, which eventually leads to recession, unemployment, etc., the economy would begin to experience a higher rate of real economic growth over the long term. Section 7. The End of Government Control and Regulation of the Economy The sixth and final reform to be dealt with here is not so much a specific reform as a commitment to the process of reform. We have seen that the legitimate function of the state is the administration of public justice, the protection of the innocent and law-abiding citizen and the apprehension and punishment of criminals. For this it bears the sword, Romans 13, 1-6, that is, it has the power of physical coercion. However, this power is exercised legitimately only insofar as it is used in pursuit of the obligations and duties that are delegated to the state by God's word. Of the 613 laws in the Torah, only a comparatively small number require enforcement or enjoin punishment by the civil authorities. And in none of these do the civil authorities act as an agency of welfare, education, art, commerce, etc. The role of the civil government is one of administering justice. For the state to enter into these areas of welfare, education and commerce with the power of the sword and enforce state-run programs funded by taxes is to overturn the social order revealed in God's word and the law that God has given to govern and protect that order. When government exceeds the bounds of and limitations on its authority as established in God's word, it ceases to act with divine approbation and authority. Furthermore, if the civil government is to administer public justice properly, fairly and effectively, it must be impartial to its deliberations and judgments. That is to say, it must be a disinterested party. Once the civil government exceeds the bounds of its legitimate authority as a ministry of public justice and becomes involved in areas of private and public life over which God's word has instituted alternative forms of government, for example, family, church, economy, it ceases to be a disinterested party and will, in its deliberations and judgments, have respect to its own interests, thereby violating its duty to administer justice impartially. That is to say, it will, to the extent of its interest in any particular sphere, cease to act impartially, and this will inevitably result in the maladministration of justice, corruption, there is no way for the state to avoid this problem. Any incursion into spheres of human life and society by the state that are not undertaken strictly with the aim of impartially administering public justice, strictly with the aim of impartially administering public justice between third parties, will adversely affect the state will adversely affect the state's ability to administer justice in those areas. This is so with regard to the economy as much as any other sphere of life. As an example of the kind of problems that are created by the state's illegitimate interference in spheres outside its own jurisdiction as a ministry of public justice, outside of its own jurisdiction as a ministry of public justice, we shall look at education. Education is an economic good subject to supply and demand, just like any other good. 
Many will find this fact unacceptable. Quote, education is too important to be left to the market, end quote, some will say. On the contrary, education is too important not to be left to market forces. In any case, there are economic goods that are far more vital to life than education, and yet the state does not take away our freedom to purchase them on a free market. Food, for instance, is far more vital and basic to life than education. We buy all our food on the open market without being dictated to by the government. For the government to step in and regulate the nation's diet by law would be considered by most people an intolerable denial of individual freedom and an abuse of the state's power and authority. And the consequences of such interference are only too obvious from the debacle that has befallen the ex-Soviet nations. Food is an economic good because it is so important. Likewise, education, because it is so important, is a scarce economic good for which people are prepared to exchange other scarce economic goods via a common medium of exchange. When the state takes control over and monopolizes education, this fact of life is not abolished by any means. We shall either pursue education in a free market or else the government will purchase it for us with funds raised by taxation and, in the process, take away our freedom to determine what kind of education our children will receive. Education remains an economic good that we pay for in both cases. But in the latter case, we have to pay far more for less and our freedom to choose what kind of education our children receive is denied us. When the state passes a law requiring all citizens to provide their children with a certain degree or kind of education, it has already distorted the operation of the free market for the provision of education by interfering with the balance between supply and demand. Having passed a compulsory education law, the state then finds that some are unwilling to educate their own children and unwilling or unable to pay the fees necessary to send their children to school. This necessitates further action on the part of the state if the law is to be upheld. But unlike law that is negative, that is, aimed at eliminating evil, for example, quote, thou shalt not murder, end quote, positive law requiring citizens to perform some form of social good as defined by modern social theory is much more difficult and problematic to enforce. Someone who steals, once convicted, can be forced to make restitution or placed in servitude until he has worked off his debt to his victim. A murderer can and should be put to death, thus ridding society of evil. The remedies for such crimes are not difficult to determine and are comparatively straightforward to administer. But the state cannot force parents to offer a level of education for their children that they consider themselves incompetent to provide nor force them to send their children to a school whose fees they cannot afford or refuse to pay. The state must, therefore, if it is to follow through consistently with its compulsory education law, provide grants from the public purse to such schools as will take the children of those who will not, or cannot, educate their children and cannot afford, or will not pay, to send them to fee-paying schools. But then this will be seen as unfair in that some have to pay school fees or educate their children at home while others have a 
free ride at the expense of the taxpayer, the numbers of those willing to pay will decrease and state funding in the form of scholarships, grants and assisted places will become the order of the day for formerly private schools. This will of course lead to state regulation in one form or another. Eventually a state education system will be established and taxes raised to fund it from the whole population, regardless of who uses the state system. This is essentially how the state educational system has developed in Britain. The state system may even become compulsory, and all private and public schools outlawed. Educational standards are then set according to bureaucratic criteria, not the economic criteria of providing an education that meets the demands of consumers, that is, fee-paying parents. The result is the corruption of the market for education and the denial of economic freedom in the provision of education. First, the state's interference in education, the provision of an economic good for some that is free at the point of delivery, but paid for by the levying of taxes on the whole population. Besides being a denial of the God-given freedom and responsibility of parents, is a fundamental injustice to those who derive no benefit, for whatever reason, from the state's provision of education. Furthermore, this injustice is perpetrated by the very institution that, above all others, has the duty to eliminate and rectify such injustice, the state. Second, the establishment of state schooling systems distorts the market for education to such a degree that it cannot function as a market at all at many levels. The provision of state education that is free at the point of delivery prices most of the state system's private competitors out of the market for those with average and low incomes. Because there are no tax concessions for those not using the state system, these people are doubly in difficulty if they wish to educate their children privately since their means of providing for their children's education has been confiscated by the government to support the state schooling system. Private schooling then becomes affordable only for the wealthier members of society. Third, another aspect of this distortion of the market for education is that private schools and teachers who do not wish to work in the state system are forced out of the market since they cannot offer their services free of charge as the state schools do. Teachers who would otherwise have provided a valuable service to the community in a free market for education are forced to seek employment in state schools, even though they may not agree with the ideology of state-funded and state-controlled education, nor with its philosophy of education, code of practices and religious perspective. Fourth, the quality of education provided in state schools is also inferior for many reasons much of which can be put down to the fact that the system is a government-controlled bureaucracy. For example, much time and energy is diverted away from essentially educational matters into paperwork designed to satisfy the bureaucratic requirements of government departments and inspectors. Political considerations may also bear upon the kind of service teachers are expected to provide. A related problem for the teaching staff is that they are expected to act as social workers and ideal substitute parents for those in society who refuse to shoulder their responsibilities as parents. 
and who wish to leave virtually the whole task of raising their children to school teachers. All this takes time and energy away from the essential task of providing an education, and these problems are greatly exacerbated for state school teachers by the high ratio of pupils to teachers in most state schools. Furthermore, since the bureaucratic method of management is utterly unsuited to economic enterprise, the provision of state schooling is far more expensive than the private alternative would be, were it permitted to function in a non-state regulated free market economy. Although the population generally may be unaware of this, due to funding of the state system being raised by taxation, along with a host of other services provided by the state. The ever-growing bureaucratic tier of management has to be funded, and this makes the whole system vastly more expensive. The result is a poorer quality of education and dissatisfied parents. Instead of being educated, pupils are subjected to the latest educational theories and programmes devised by the state bureaucrats and progressive educationalists, the main effect of which seems to be the steady growth of illiteracy in society and the continual downgrading of academic standards. It would be wrong to think that this situation necessarily represents a failure on the part of the teaching profession, as politicians would perhaps like us to believe. Rather, the problem is that the provision of education is not suited to bureaucratic government management and suffers from the irrationalities that such a system of administration inevitably enforces upon what is, essentially, an economic enterprise. In short, state education is uneconomic, wasteful, inefficient, and fails in large measure to deliver the product. In re- the growth in recent decades of illiteracy in Western societies such as Britain and the United States, which have developed highly bureaucratized state education systems over the past century, is ample testimony to this fact. The same kinds of arguments are relative to the provision of other economic goods by the government, for example, health care, social services, works and utilities, welfare, etc. It is important, therefore, that the government should withdraw from all such involvement with the economy and restrict itself to the administration of public justice. It can only do this properly and effectively if it is disinterested and impartial in its relationships with the economy and indeed with any other aspect of life in which it has the responsibility to administer justice. The privatisation of nationalised industries begun during the 1980s should, therefore, be continued, rationalised and extended to include areas such as education and welfare. The proceeds from the sale of nationalised industries should be used to reduce the national debt. In particular, privatisation should not take the form of turning a government-created and nationalised monopoly into a private monopoly, and care must be taken to ensure that, in the privatisation of nationalised industries, the creation of free market conditions and competition is prioritised. The public is not served, nor justice done, when a vast private monopoly simply replaces a public monopoly. Conditions must be created in which competition and free entry into previously government-controlled or unionised industries is possible. Only when the government has withdrawn from involvement in the economy will it be able to pursue impartially and fairly 
its own duties and obligations as a ministry of justice. Examples of injustices perpetrated by the government when it enters into spheres of life for which God has ordained alternative forms of government that are independent of the legitimate function of the state could be multiplied. The essential point is that government should be limited to the administration of public justice. When government fails to observe its legitimate boundaries, justice is the first casualty because the state ceases to be an impartial judge in its administration of justice. The usual term for this is corruption. The pursuit of justice in society by the civil government is too important to be compromised in this way, and therefore the process of reform set forth above must be pursued vigorously until the limits of government power and authority are reduced to that of the impartial administration of public justice.